after the world saw the blade, that's when Skidoo went to work. To, uh, they were the first ones to jump on it. They, and, and that would be like Skidoo. Skidoo gets aggressive. And, mm -hmm. and they came out first. And then you saw the other guys follow. Mm -hmm. uh, no, no, uh, you didn't see the RX-1 until that came out in 2003, I think. Welcome back to the Snowman Podcast. This is your host, Gorda Van. In this episode, we're going to have uh, some more legends of snowmobile racing. But first, um, I want to remind uh, people to uh, please subscribe to this podcast and share it with your friends if you like, other groups, Facebook groups, uh, your uh, snowmobile clubs. Uh, and you can do that from uh, in subscribing onto iTunes or on your Facebook page, the Snowmobiling Podcast Facebook page. Click on the link. And you can either stream this podcast or you can download it to your smartphone, your tablet, your computer. Uh, with iTunes, you uh, can just subscribe to it. And all the past episodes are on there for you to listen to. And all the future episodes will be brought to you, your, uh, your device um, in the future when, uh, when I upload them. So that said, today's episode, we're going to have real legends in snowmobile racing. The Carpet Brothers have been innovators, they've been manufacturers, they've been racers, they've been mechanics. And um, I uh, first became involved uh, with uh, uh, Gerard Carpic uh, when my brother Kenavan, who we're going to listen to today too, um, uh, was racing for the Skidoo factory team. I met Gerard uh, when we had to uh, come in and uh, build these, uh, the new stock uh, snowcross leads. So we're going to talk to Ken about his experiences with uh, Gerard Karpik, and uh, we're also going to uh, listen to uh, Dave Karpik. He was a mechanic for some of the largest snow, snow pro teams, um, ha also helped the uh, uh, development of uh, some skidoos uh, um, in their uh, racing department. Um, so without further ado, here's Kenavan, my brother, talking about his experiences with Gerard Karpik. I hope you like this episode. I'm, uh, I'm really uh, pumped to talk to Gerard again, an old friend. So here we go. On the line with me uh, today is uh, Ken Evan, president of the uh, Canadian Snowcross Racing Association. Ken, you worked with uh, Gerard Karpik uh, in your uh, early years uh, with uh, Skidoo. Uh, talk about uh, Gerard Karpik. Okay, sure, my pleasure. Um, to start with, uh, I, I've been involved in racing at uh, that time for um, probably uh, 10 years prior to meeting Gerard and, and another 10 years following that. And, and um, I, I just have to say it was an honor to be able to work with uh, a guy of, um, of his caliber. There's very few um, engineers, mechanics, racers that are uh, as a combined individual that has everything going for them. And Basically, a leader in the uh, in their in their sport, and um, Gerard was certainly uh, one of the best engineers and racers um, in the snowmobile industry of all time. So uh, it, it was fabulous to have an opportunity to work with him. There's only uh, probably a couple other guys that are, are, are in his league as far as um, doing both, and that would be um, in, in my eyes anyhow, uh, Tim Bender and um, and Kirk Hibbert. I uh, worked with Tim quite a bit as well. I raced against him a number of times, and and um, as well as Kirk, and um, all three of them are very, uh, very similar. Um, basically, geniuses in their in their field, and uh, also uh, just world class people. Very passionate, 
and and warm and um and a pleasure to be around so it uh it was a great time with uh it was my best time in racing to, to be um affiliated with those guys at that uh, that time frame okay um so you started with skidoo in uh 83 um skidoo was uh developing a new uh snowcross sled at the time uh the ISR was coming out with some new rules regarding snowcross, uh, so Skidoo brought out this uh, sled called the Pro Stock, and there was a, a limited build. There was, a, a, I've heard, uh, about 14 of them built, and uh, that was your first year with Skidoo, and uh, Gerard was kind of the lead hand in uh, in kind of uh, getting those sleds up uh, up and running. Um, talk about uh, uh, those uh, that first uh, sled that uh, you raced. Yeah, when I first started working and racing with Skidoo, um, they were the snowcross sport was just coming on strong, and um, the manufacturers were starting to build uh, special build uh, race sleds for for cross country and snowcross competition. And Gerard had developed um, the Carpet Special just prior to that, which was a very uh, successful sled with with him um, with him riding it. And then um, they decided they were going to build some special uh, limited number of of um, uh, the pro stock sled for for selecting the individuals. To participate with and compete with and I was happened to be lucky enough to be one of them so we ended up um, going to Valcor and working directly with Gerard to build those um, first grounded prototype sleds and um, it was a tremendous experience I learned a lot uh, hanging down there on the race shop with those guys and um, they happened to use me as the guinea pig to um, uh, test the sled and they uh, flew me up to northern Quebec to race against all the Indians on the Polarithas because that's all that they raced at the time so we did a 100-mile cross-country race up in Shibugamu, Quebec. Um, I'd never seen Gerard laugh so hard uh, as he watched me compete against these guys who were very aggressive and amazing, amazing riders on the Polaris Indy 340s. And I was the only guy there with a Skidoo uh, prototype. So um, I think we finished 10th, so it was a respectable finish for what I had to deal with. And uh, the sled ran excellent. There was a few little issues that we corrected before we um, put it on the racetrack um, after that. But um, it, was a, it was a great experience. Never forget it. So it, the, the sled had really uh, performed uh, mostly uh, its best on, on, on the oval circuit, uh, really. It, uh, it was a phenomenal handling sled. Um, so um, going into the uh, oval snowcross season, uh, you're racing the OSRF and uh, also the, uh, the uh, United States circuit, uh, uh, along with another, uh, a number of uh, the well-known uh, pro, pro uh, stock racers uh, back then. Um, you talk about uh, the first events. Uh, I think Owen Sound was the first one, and then it went to Alexandria. Uh, so talk about those uh, those those uh, those events and uh, working with Gerard, because Gerard was uh, was working with all the racers at that time, uh, trying to get this sled up and running. Yeah, the very first race that that sled race that was Alexandria, Minnesota, and we went out there with um, it was the, it was the first major race in the USA. And we went out there with a strong contingent of riders on the new sled. Um, there was um, Brian Musselman and um, and uh, myself, and I believe Todd Elmer, and a number of uh, a number of uh, Lee Falk, a number of top top racers, and we were racing against the Yamaha team of Bobby Donahue and, and Bender and and a bunch of other guys on Polaris. And um, first time on the track, I was lucky enough to be able to uh, to win that um, to win the first race for that sled. So that was uh, that was a really cool cool uh, cool race for me, and uh, I'll never forget that one. And um, and I have to thank Gerard for. Uh, his efforts because he was the one who uh, was kind of helping me out um, with the setup of the sled and um, and everything that he put together uh, just and and with myself it all uh, it all came together and we ended up winning the race which was a big race for Skidoo um, we dropped that sled on the track for the first time that's great and 
you, you obviously had a, a number of uh, other victories uh, um, with uh, with that sled uh, after uh, after all the bugs were worked out, and uh, that sled went on to uh, in the next year to uh, to become a, fi a fifty build sled, and uh, again some uh, some more victories, and uh, and uh, Gerard uh, um, I guess went on to uh, to other projects, but. Uh, uh, his other project was uh, Team Fast, and um, you again uh, um, kind of uh, teamed up with uh, with Gerard when he uh, had his Team Fast, and uh, he brought over the uh, the first major uh, European snowcross star with Tony Heiken and uh, attending uh, one of your uh, events in uh, in uh, Mont Saint Louis, I believe it was. Yeah, first, Gord, I have to go back to the just the first oxide one more time. Um, that sled was originally designed, Gord, for for cross country snowcross type racing, but the suspension system that Gerard put into that system, in, into that particular sled, was a very low center of gravity system with the shocks under the engine. And we could adjust the height of the sled with a simple adjustment, um, so there was six inches of variance where we could raise the sled for snow cross across country and, or lower it for oval racing in a matter of a few minutes. And um, so that sled basically was, uh, um, out of all my time racing, 20 years of racing um, pro, that was my favorite sled. The reason for that was that you could, um, first of all, it was it was custom built, hand built, and you could adjust it to race either uh, either snowcross, cross country, or ovals. And that particular year with that sled, I I won the um, a pro stock oval championship with it. I also won 100 mile cross country race with it, and I won a pro open snowcross class um, division with that here in Ontario. So it's it's um, it's pretty amazing to win all three different disciplines of racing with one sled. I don't, I don't think that'll ever happen again. And um, so that sled was very special to me. I'd like to find an, I'd like to find one now, actually, and have it as a, a keepsake just to keep in my shop. Well, I'm sure there's a, there's a big collector's uh, um, business going on these days. I'm sure those sleds are around. I've seen a couple pictures on, on the uh, Facebook group and stuff like that. Those, those sleds are around, and a lot, a lot of people are restoring those sleds. You were also uh, in line to... Um, to uh, get one of the EXP sleds, uh, but that sled, uh, there was only a couple built and um, it just never materialized. Uh, did you ever hear what, uh, what happened with that? No, I didn't go much further with that. Um, after we did the pro stock sled skidoo, uh, we were hoping that sled was going to go to pr full production with, uh, with Bombardier, but um, they decided to go come up with the MX, MX sled that was, um, it looked similar on the exterior, but it was nowhere near the same sled that we had um, that, that Gerard had hand built had built with us. It was a totally different sled as far as suspension systems and and the weight of the sled and the design of it. And the reason for that, um, I know Gerard was a little bit um, wound up over. He was hoping more stuff would be uh, basically put to production, so it would have been a much better sled for the um, for the consumer than what Skidoo actually came up with. But you know, Bombardier came back with the fact that a lot of the Things that were in the pro stock sled were just expensive and really hard to adapt to production for the big numbers. So that was um, the excuse they came up with for not um, for not using a lot of those ideas for that uh, for that fabulous sled. But um, anyhow, that was that. It was a great time. And um, then, like I said, we moved on to uh, I moved out of uh, competing and started doing promotions and promoting snowcross races. And our first race was uh, um, at Mount St. Louis Ski Resort in um, in Ontario. I used to uh, work at the Oval Circuit for 25 years, and um, I tried getting them to bring Snowcross in, but um, they wouldn't do it. They didn't think it would work. So when we brought um, Snowcross to Mount St. Louis, it, uh, we had I think, 200 participants in the very first race, which was uh, twice as many participants as what the uh, Oval Circuit had after 25 years. So I knew there was some um, 
great opportunity there, and and here we are, 20 years later, still doing uh, still doing snowcross, and it's um, it's thriving right now. But um, for that first event, yes, you mentioned uh, me working with Jared Carpick on that as well. He, when he ran the fast team with um, with Tony Heikkinen, and yes, Jared did uh, help us bring um, Heikkinen up to Ontario for that first race, and that really set the stage for the uh, CSRA snowcross program by bringing in a world class um, participant from Finland. Uh, he was a top guy at the time, and that um, allowed us to promote um, Tony Heikkinen and, and the big names, and, and, and Brock kicked the series off with uh, is a major event right off the bat. Okay, on the telephone uh, we have uh, the Carpet Brothers. Um, we got some in uh, Minnesota. I uh, so all of you are in Minnesota, correct? Correct. 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 Okay, and uh, I want you to uh, we get uh, Gerard Carpet. We got Dave Carpet, and we got Randy Carpet on the line. Um, so, uh, let's start with, uh, the early years, 1970s, um, Gerard, Dave, um, and Randy, um, how did you all get started in snowmobiling? Let's start with, let's start with Gerard first. Well, our uncle was a, a skidoo dealer. That was a strong driver. Uh, we all, we all did at various times work within his shop servicing, cleaning, washing, doing whatever. But uh, my first ride on a snowmobile was actually on a Scorpion. And uh, it was brand new, uh, sunny blue day. I think it was the fiber, now I think, I know it was the fiberglass chassis. So whatever year that thing came out, um, complete, you know, the first composite Formula One snowmobile chassis made by Scorpion. You know, all those guys in Europe copied after uh, Scorpion had driven the path forward. But uh, uh, from that day forward, my life had changed because it was just such an exciting, exciting, exciting experience. I couldn't get over it. So. And what type of racing were you doing? Well, it wasn't racing; just riding. It. Just, just riding. Okay. Um, and uh, and uh, and all of you, all of the uh, the brothers were doing this. Well, uh, yeah, I think we. I remember. I don't actually remember that. I remember getting into the Scorpion air sled or the the Trail Maker air sled. You know, it was the airplane engine huh? on the back of the fuselage instead of skis. It's actually what I remember climbing in first. And and you and you guys were all living in uh, Minnesota at this time, correct? Staples, Minnesota. Yeah, perfect. And um, Randy, when was your first? My first ride was probably when Dad put the ten horse on the porch. Okay. And Norman Rockwell Christmas. <laughs> yeah, you got to remember. I, Gord, you got to remember, I'm quite a bit younger than those two. Yeah, yeah. yeah so. <laughs> um, okay, so um, you, you started with the uh, that sled. Um, when was your? When did you really decide that you should maybe uh, give racing a chance? Um, and um, what sleds uh, did you start with? Or and your first basically competitive sleds. Well, we were lucky in that Skidoo had put in a, the first snowmobile high-performance shop just a mile or so from our parents' house. So we were busy watching, you know, all the early TNTs and blizzards being run all over the place there by a, a team owned by a, name, a gentleman named John Staver. John and Laurent Bodwin were good buddies. And uh, actually, but for a nod of a hat one way or another, uh, I think the distributorship for Skidoo could have actually gone out of Everest, Virginia, Minnesota, somewhere in that area. It was pretty close anyways, between Halverson and between uh, John Staver. But uh, Staver ran a real first-class operation. Uh, he had five drivers. He'd take around the country 
take care of all expenses for them. And it, it was a, a semi-pro team, I guess you'd call it, at that point in time. And all of us just aspired to try to get on that team. Uh, and then eventually one day I was lucky enough to. But uh, I first bought a 1970 Blizzard, a year-old Blizzard, uh, from the dealer in Hibbing, Minnesota, about 20 miles away. And I bought that working at the Everest Airport, and I was being paid 50 cents an hour. So <laughs> do the math. Uh, on that, I think it was a $600 buy. Are you still paying for that? No, no I finally got past. <laughs> but uh, that sled just happened to be competitive. The Luckily, that sled happened to be competitive the next year. We bought a 292 and a 340 from them. My older brother, Stephen, bought the 340, and I bought the 292. But the 340 was not competitive the next year, but the 292 was. So I went on and won a few class or won a few races that year with that thing. Got myself some notoriety. Which, and, and that was, uh, was was that oval racing or or cross country? Oval, back then you did oval and cross country, and uh, if you were crazy enough, you did jumping too. Mm -hmm. uh, I never did jumping; just did cross country and oval. Yeah, what? Uh, but back then, what did you enjoy doing more? Uh, I liked them both. Just just ride anything with a sled. I I really didn't have a inclination then which way I was going to go. I enjoyed the hell out of racing both of them. And how about uh, Randy and Dave? Uh, were you riding any any of these sleds, or did you have sleds with yourself? No, at that point we were still pretty young. I mean, he was young, Gerard was young. I don't know what were you, sixteen? Yeah, yeah. So we were several years younger than that. We were probably still racing bicycles. Right. <laughs> so uh, um, you had some you had some pretty good race experience, though. What do you mean? Well, with the Rhinelander, uh, with what was that, 340 or 440? Oh, yeah, it was a 340 class. Uh, that was my, my big snow pro win of my career. You know, fortunately, Brad Hewlings didn't run in that particular class. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so you guys were, were obviously... I myself... Uh, finally got a chance to race one of Gerard's sleds at the Minnesota 100, I think it was called, and that's when I uh, realized that I wasn't going to make any money driving a snowmobile. I better uh, focus on working on them. Mr. Big 10%. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> oh, perfect. Yeah. Um, we had a, our father was a, he was, he was, Extremely mechanical. He was an engineer without the sheepskin as well, and, and uh, so we learned a lot. I guess from tearing apart trucks in the middle of winter, re you know, helping them rebuild engines and stuff like that. Things that none of us really wanted to do, actually. But <laughs> you know, I think a lot of a lot of our education, so to speak, started by just pulling things, tearing things apart. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean. See if you can get them back together again, you know, whether it be a motorcycle or snowmobile or whatever. Yeah. Back back then, um, did you guys have any, have any like, uh, I mean, you guys are uh, recognized for innovation in your suspensions and stuff like that. Back then, did you guys, like, come up with anything, you know, special for, for these sleds that you were racing back then? Well, I, I, I'm going to jump in here because I don't want to <laughs> my little story, but when I cut up the family snowmobile... <laughs> It blew a track, and it kind of blew diagonally, and tracks were expensive. 
you know, they're about 70 bucks a piece. And, you know, you work for probably, like Gerard said, 50 to 75 cents an hour. So there's no way you're going to buy a track that year. So I actually, I cut the track, cut that section out, and I spliced it back together with a conveyor belt hinge. And then I cut off the last foot of the snowmobile. So you lost a set of bogeys, Gordon. Yeah, took out, yeah. Took out that whole rear linkage system that were on the old skidoos for track tension. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. And moved everything forward. And I didn't know how to weld, but I saw my dad brazing, so I probably used about, I don't know, four or five pounds of brass on that thing. And I got it all back together. I think I picked up an exhaust pipe from Gerard somehow and some dual HL carburetors. And that thing... Uh, it never went straight again. <laughs> <laughs> so that innovation probably didn't work that well. No, it didn't. And, yeah. and my next move was well, my dad wouldn't allow me to do it, um, but I wanted to cut out the gas tank and put the motor down below. And uh, he said, absolutely not. And if there was one snowmobile that I'd like to have, that would be it today. Yeah. And what, what, what sled was that again? Uh, it was an old Skidoo 10 horse, and it was the one that Randy had mentioned earlier about we received on Christmas one day when we all got up about 5 in the morning, and there was nothing under the tree hardly, you know, a few boxes. I understand uh, Dad was a hard-working construction man, had eight kids, I think, alive at that point in time. Uh, so it wasn't that uncommon to not have, but there, there was always something under the tree. Always something under the tree, and that year... Boy, the tree was scarce and under the tree. And my mom and dad finally got up, still dark out. And after they teased us enough with uh, not having much, turned the floodlights on out on the deck, and there was this 10-horse snowmobile. And it wasn't new either. Uh -huh. But there was seven kids at least with their faces glued to the window in total awe. And yeah. that, that was really... The beginning, I think, of uh, that was first was beginning with our strong attachment to Skidoo and stuff. So. Well, that, that's a that's a funny sure story because uh, 2015 Skidoo looks as good as that one did. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. What a what a funny story because that that's exactly how our family got involved in snowmobiling. Uh, it was a Christmas uh, Christmas, and uh, our our parents bought us a, a 72 snow cruiser. And uh, so that, cool. that, that's uh, that's pretty funny that uh, you had you uh, experienced the same thing. <laughs> yeah, there probably was a lot of that. Yeah, you know? yeah. Families, families really wanted to be to be involved in snowmobiling. I mean, they're, they're hyping it up so much on in TV commercials, black and white TV commercials and stuff. And, you know, how families can enjoy this uh, this sport. So, uh, um, yeah, like you say, there's probably a lot of that going on. Um, okay, uh, so the uh, uh, Gerard, you were you became um, quite uh, quite unbeatable in uh, in, the, in the cross country racing. Uh, um, getting into the, uh, the the 70s now uh, on the uh, the RVs, um, you, you you became you know King Carpet is, is what uh, is what everybody called you. How did how did all that uh, begin with uh, the cross country racing and and running that circuit? Well, uh, it really started uh, through the decline more than it started through gain. Uh, I told you earlier. I, 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 no, I didn't point out that. I've been lucky enough to be standing in the right place many of the times of my life. Uh, I eventually got a ride on that Staver team that I had mentioned earlier, 
And that was because one of their drivers broke his leg in the first year at Ironwood. Now, I was too young to be on the team, but uh, the business, local businessman recognized I had a little bit of talent, and he would haul me to the races, kind of like a farm team guy. So I spent a year racing basically at his expense, uh, and then eventually went on his team. Now, uh, I started real well. I won a few races, and uh, I, I beat Ed Shabitsky, I beat Stan Hayes. I mean, I beat some of the best names in the game, Doug Hayes, uh, uh, the Players Boys. Uh, at, at, at the last race of the year, I think in 72, and that was, uh, uh, oh, it was in Munising, Michigan. It was a, it was a neat event. Um, but uh, everything kind of declined from there. Um, I, I was really getting competitive, and then I started uh, losing my way a bit. Let's say instead of being 100% focused on racing, I was goofing around like the other guys were, you know, on the weekends when we were at the races and stuff like that. And uh, slowly I crept down to um, being uh, almost unsponsorable. Or let's say I was unsponsorable by that point. So I. I had a couple good years there and then crept backwards. But uh, one day, Stan, uh, I should, let's see, Stan Hayes and Ed Shabitsky and Doug were all in the I-500 race. And uh, uh, Stan had burnt down and, and Ed had burnt down. And Stan had to be off to some race somewhere else. I don't remember what, but he asked Ed if Ed would go pick up his sled. So Ed had his trailer. He was a he was a distributor team, or however you called it back then, not quite factory. But he picked up up uh, Stan's sled and brought it back with him to Duluth, Minnesota. Then I got a call about a week later, or maybe a couple weeks later, and Ed said, "How'd you like to race in Eagles Heartland Grand Prix?" I said, "Sure, I'd love to." I said, "What have you got for me?" And he said, "He says, oh, I've got Stan Hayes' sled." Uh, it's burnt down. You have to come down and rebuild it, and uh, and then you you can race it. So I said, well, I'd love to. Have, have we got permission for this? He said, no. He, he said, as long as you don't hit any trees, nobody's going to find out. <laughs> I said, oh, super. Uh, so I went down and I rebuilt the sled. And again, those were harder times back then. I rebuilt that sled outside because Ed didn't have any any garage space. He was working in his basement back then. Uh, and it was pretty cold back then, but anyway, got the sled running, and it, it was just—it was an unbelievable sled. Uh, all they did was back the ignition timing down a little bit and up the jet just a little bit. And otherwise, other than that, it was straight stand settings on everything, and that thing flat ass flew. And although the Eagle Heartland then was a 300-mile woods race, three laps woods race, uh, it had enough road where that Mercury just flew. I mean. I could see an Articat a mile ahead on a two-mile straightaway. It seemed like I could catch him by the end of it. So really? it, was, it was really the best sled. So that won me my first uh, cross-country race. Uh, and uh, eventually Mercury did find out that I used the sled, of course. Um, so I now had set a tone for cross-country racing because I beat all the, all the big names then. I don't remember. Uh, oh, gosh, what was the, the guy with the CNA skis? Uh, Oh, McCormickin. Yeah, Dale McCormickin. Uh, wow. All the Articat team was there. Yeah. All the players cross country. Everybody was there. And, uh, you know, I was, I forget what CJ, Dark Horse, called me the Dark Horse. That's it when I won that thing. Yeah. And he wrote me up nice, and, and that helped things go forward. So then uh, I managed to take that, get some 
uh, mercury sponsorship the following year, and over the next couple of years, managed to turn that into nothing again. And then uh, I went to work for Ed Shabitsky as a mechanic because I could no longer get a single sponsor anywhere. And Ed was a real creative guy, and he was always changing his chassis. And I already knew quite a bit about fab work from working at that performance products Caduce first race shop. Uh, they were very distant from each other at that time. Uh, but uh, I, I knew enough about the Skidoo's from being there that I was an asset to Ed, uh, building chassis and things like that for him. Mm -hmm. um, but one night I was working late. I forget what race. I think we were getting ready for Peterborough, if I'm, I'm not mistaken. And uh, Ed, that la the last race, came up with a new chassis idea. And I was busy uh, realizing his dreams uh, and welding up a new chassis up in the Skidoo race shop. And uh, uh, that was in Valcour there. And uh, at 11 at night, the then race manager, I think his name was Conrad Bernier, he was like a god back then. I mean, racing was so important to the uh, Skidoo culture that uh, the race manager really was a high position to have. And it was, he thought he had somebody breaking into the back of the race shop. And uh, so he snuck into the race shop, and he kind of jumps out in an uh, aha moment, and he says, uh, what, what, what are you doing here? And I said, well, uh, you know, Ed, he's real creative, and you're always building something new for him. I said, I'm busy getting a Peterborough chassis together here. So I showed him what it was, and he was pretty impressed with everything coming together there. And this Ed had his own little hideaway room in the race department because he's, again, clever, clever Eddie. Um, but then finally he says to me, he says, you know, we're not really used to hiring mechanics off the street like you. We're just not used to, you know, guys who can come in and build the way you're building. And he says, you are really a good mechanic. I says, no, I'm not a good mechanic. He says, well, if you're not a good mechanic, what are you? I said, I'm the best cross-country racer you've ever seen. <laughs> and he laughed just like that, yeah. uh, same way. And uh, the evening kind of ended up, and he went away, and that was that. Went to Peterborough. I think we were competitive, and uh, rest just kind of goes on. But anyways, a couple weeks later, maybe three weeks later, CJ writes an article. He used to have a, a mechanics column in the back of the uh, in the back of, of uh, Snow Week. Remember, CJ founded the started Snow Week then, yeah. back then. But anyways. Uh, he featured me as mechanic, and of, of course, the quotable quote that comes up, uh, this is the best cross-country racer that's ever built an oval racing sled. <laughs> and, and this guy, Conrad Brunier, read that a week or two later, and, and a few weeks later, and of course, he came, came back and he said, it's true, it's true, you weren't lying to me. And I said, no, no, it's true. And that was that. So I finished up the work there for the year, and I went home, and uh, then I think it was June, July that year, I got the call from him, and uh, it, then the team was being run by, who was the designer between? Uh, Réjean? Yeah, Réjean Beauregard was running the team. Betwe between Conrad Bernier and Chester, it was Réjean. And he said, I've got two job offers for you. And I said, well, what are they? He said, one, you could come back and be Doug Hayes' mechanic. I forget what the money was. It was good money, $20,000, $30,000, something like that for a year's worth of work, uh, or six months' worth of work. 
uh, I said, okay, what's the other job? He says, well, we're starting a new cross-country team down in Virginia, Minnesota, and uh, we give you that. I said, what does that pay? He says, oh, we're going to pay just enough, that job, just enough to get a guy on workman's comp. <laughs> I said, what do you think that is? About 50 bucks a week. I said, I'll, I'll take the 50 bucks a week. And therein goes how I got to be really? to the cross-country game. Yeah. Again, so much of life is just, you've got to be out there presenting yourself, don't get me wrong, but so much of it is, in my case anyways, just happened to be standing in the right place at the right time. Yeah, perfect. Uh, so um, after, after uh, you, you did your, your time as a, as, as a mechanic, when did, when did you start, start re realize that you, want, you wanted to, um, uh, or sorry, you, you wanted to uh, do, take that racing job instead? Um, so you went back to, uh, to racing. What, uh, what sleds did you start racing then? Uh, that's in that 78 cross-country RV. Okay, yeah. Um, all right, uh, so um, one of our contributors uh, uh, asked me to ask you, uh, um, you, you raced the, the, the Skidoo model RV, but uh, th there were some suggestions that uh, uh, one of your models might have been a moto ski um, at, at, with, a, with a Skidoo uh, uh, livery. They were all moto skis. Uh, wasn't it because of the track throughout? Yeah, the motoski had a one mile an hour faster track on it, so everything that we ever raced was never a skidoo. We were always motoski racing. Yeah, because because uh, in the pictures I'm looking at here, all all of them have uh, skidoo hoods and you know skidoo uh, rivalry rivalry on them kind of thing. But they, they were all motoskis, were they? Yeah, we painted them yellow. Yeah. And, and black, mostly black. But over time, we eventually just stopped painting them black. We'd run blue. Start blue. Start blue. Perfect. Um, so after after the the, uh, the cross country uh, uh, racing, you, where, where did it go from there? Because obviously you 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 uh, you started to get more involved with uh, with Skidoo at the time. Um, so what happened after after the cross country racing? Well, I think we went from having competitive. We ran that seventy eight RV in seventy eight, seventy nine, and eighty, and we dominated through those three years. We were beating the Polaris Indy with Elite Spring yeah. regularly. There, we were making those guys pull their hair out of their heads. They used to send film film crews, and they just film us racing down the ditch line, film us all over the place, trying to figure out what we were doing. And actually, the sled was a pretty darn good sled. But when a team's got great support, and you've got great mechanical uh, skills within the team, got the financial support, got a sled that's at least competitive, it's really hard to beat that combination. You can ask people how easy it's been to beat Tucker Earbirth, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, so, so uh, it just bring, it, breeds, it breeds confidence is what it does. Yeah, you actually believe you can't be beat. Yeah. And when you get that going, you, you really got something. Yeah. It doesn't sustain itself forever, but well, it does, it's, it's a powerful tool. Um, but anyways, the, the sleds became uh, the issue next. Uh, the next sled we were asked to race by Skidoo was the... Was it 9500 or 7700? Yeah, 5500 yeah, 5, yeah. 5, Skidoo fit the classes, and it wasn't near the chassis what the RV was. I think it was a half inch narrower, and it was a steel frame, as I recall. Well, that was the first one was the one with the leaf spring. Oh, okay. We, we raced, yeah, yeah, yeah. They were bigger. Yeah, there was a transitional year where we could race both the 78 RV and the, whatever they call the formula chassis. What's it called? Randy, what was that thing called? 
the that was the MXZ the Least, uh, before the MXZ, yeah, it was 5500. That's what it was. 5500, yeah, it was just the 5500. Yeah, they were, bliz they were blizzards, weren't they? Yeah. How'd your racing debut go, Randy? Well, uh, I found out uh, that I I was fast enough in the rough sections, but my sled was slow, so I could only go fast in the rough sections, and I never ended up crashing it, but uh, I got through one of the rough sections, and the whole rear suspension came out of the sled. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I'm not going to make any money doing this. <laughs> right. So, But that was the 5500 Skidoo. Okay. It was big, heavy, and slow. Yeah, hit her. The, the high point of that year was when Roger Skyim, we were at Forest Lake, Minnesota, and we had that thing running. How fast did that thing go, Randy? I don't even remember. It was crazy. Uh, we got it up to 93 one time. 93 miles an hour. Huh? 93, 91, something like that. So we had broke down while leading the Minnesota Governor's Cup with that particular sled, really? and we were probably only a few miles from the finish line, and uh, we're, you know, kind of depressed. We broke down and stuff, and uh, Roger Skyme, who we dearly love, uh, came running up to us after the race. He said, there's no damn way that damn Skidoo goes 93 miles an hour. I had you on the radar gun out there. Now, God damn, you're cheating, and you know you're cheating. And I won't say that he was ready to go fist to cuff with us, but uh, I will say that he was darn mad. Yeah. And uh, uh, I can also add that it's probably lucky that we broke down because I suspect we would have a hard time surviving the teardown that day. <laughs> That's funny. That's great. Um, all right. So, so after the blizzard, now is is Skidoo taking notice of all this? Uh, like, uh, is or, you know, with with production sleds obviously getting better and better, was the development of of anything future coming up uh, that was interesting? Not really. There there wasn't a lot of love between the race department. There wasn't a lot of hate, but there wasn't a lot of interest in what the race department was doing. Skidoo was as a company, as always, you describe them as wonderful. We would describe them as wonderful when it comes to racing. It, they always knew it was an important focal point, but it wasn't driving their design at that point in time. Yeah. They yeah. loved their racing, but uh, there was the development group, the R&D people, and there was the race department, two separate entities, two separate buildings. Uh, the, the then director of engineering was always trying to drive the two of them together, but uh, there was a lot of resistance, I would say, of course, more from the the R&D guys than there was from the race guys. The race guys were an open book on pretty much everything they, that, that they were doing. They would share openly anywhere. Yeah. Okay, so let's... Uh, really, their, uh, their engineering and fabrication department was uh, on par with uh, any world-class manufacturer. Their, their fabricators could bend metal, tubing, weld, machine, I mean, what they could make, they'd make prototype sleds that looked like they came off the production line. It was just absolutely amazing what their uh, R&D group could do at that time yeah. with all manual machines. You know, there weren't any CNC uh, machine parts. If they had a bunch of contours to it, it was all done on a manual machine. 
is pretty exotic, the stuff they'd uh, build back then. Yeah, real craft. Just the equipment they had to work with. Yeah, the R&D facility there, those, those guys were artisans. They weren't craftsmen. Yeah. They were actual artists. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so coming coming into, uh, uh, I guess, the 1980s now, um, you know, stock racing is, is, is really doing well. Formula One is really doing well. Uh, um, so racing, racing in all, in, in all divisions is really, is really uh, doing well. Um, what, what and, and I believe you, were you started at, uh, at Skidoo? Were you working with Skidoo then, Gerard? Or, um... Well, right away when I went to work for them in 78, the trip started, to Valcour started again. Uh, mind you, my first time I was there it was in 1971, welding exhaust pipes in the race shop a bazillion years ago with that high-performance outfit, uh, uh, performance product. But uh, uh, again, the trip started going back and forth between Valcour and Evos. There was there was quite a few years of, of that. That went on till 1996, I think. So yeah, a lot, lot of involvement with them over the years. But uh, uh, they they were certainly paying attention to the victories. They were using it as their ad campaign. I, I think I had four covers on Snow Week one year, and uh, of course, with every cover went the full page ads on the back. And Skidoo was definitely taken notice, but at that time the R&D, again, was separate from the race group entirely. Yeah. Uh, so no, uh, no no, attention was being paid to what we were doing for production sleds at that point. Am, am I right on that, guys, in saying that? David, is that yeah. the call? Yeah. That they did what? That the Skidoo did, the R&D wasn't paying any attention to the race department. No, they were, they were, they were on, at that time, I think they were all, they were, Kind of heading towards the PRS development. No, they hadn't gotten there. They were, they had that in between sled that John he built that in between one. I never saw the light of day, but uh, uh, it well, wasn't the, the PRS yet. But the PRS was probably what 80, 80, middle eighty three. Eighty three, I think. It was there before we left in eighty four. Yeah, I take that yeah. back. They had gone to two. They had followed the race department into two frames at that point in time Correct. with the R and D group had. They they weren't something that they were releasing yet, but they were building them at that point in time. Yeah. Okay. So that that kind of uh, presents the uh, um, eighty in 1980 or so. Uh, obviously, there 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 must have been some kind of uh, a plan to build a a purpose built uh, snowcross sled. Um, ISR rules were were. Uh, a little, a little vague at the time, but they're 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 pretty pretty good. Um, the the carpet special uh, that when did that uh, planning for that start? Um, and um, how did how did the uh, the uh, basically production and the development of that sled come around? That's kind of a neat launch on that one. Uh, Skidoo had their dealer meeting down in the Bahamas on a on a cruise ship they had rented, and I was down there, you know, just kind of entertaining a little bit, meeting some meet and greets with the dealers. And uh, Jim Bilkey of the famous Bilkey family, uh, uh, Race and Rally, Snowtech Magazine, uh, he had attended the event. And uh, we were flying back from the Bahamas uh, back to Minnesota and happened to be sitting next to each other. And, it, and he, Jim said, well, tell me your dreams. And uh, I said, well, I'd really like to get going building an IFS for Skidoo. Got some pretty good ideas on it. And, and I said, I need a class to race it in. 
And he, he said, well, lo and behold, we have a class that just might fit you. And then he told me about his dreams for the Deco Holiday Spectacular. Uh, I think that's what it was called, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's what it was called. Uh, and uh, uh, I said, well, geez, you know, if, if the rules were just loosened up a little bit in this area and that area, I, I said, you would stimulate some creativity, at least from our camp. And I'm sure the Polaris guys would respond because they were cleverly building race stuff. And, and of course, the Arctic guys were really good at it as well. And the others kind of tapered from there a little bit. But Jim said, well, so if, if I allowed you to modify the front half of the chassis and you had to start with a stock frame, would that be enough for you? I said, absolutely. If the rules are written like that, we can build a sled. So that's, where that, that's where that actually came from. Yeah. So, it, did, so did you pre present that idea to uh, to Skidoo, and, um, and and they gave you the green light, and or, or what was the you know process for for getting that project underway? Well, Jim then sent a, a copy of the rules shortly thereafter to me, in which he had loosened up the the front end and modification, and uh, I went to my boss and said, "Well, really, racing the." Blizzard MX isn't going to prove out too good for us going forward here. We don't really have anything in the arsenal. Would you consider letting us build this? And he said yes. Really? Yeah. That was Chester. That was Gaetan Duval, yep. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. Um, so what, what was the development period of that sled? How, how, many, how long did it take to actually from <laughs> yeah. design to... Randy, how long did... <laughs> when did we start? When did we go up to uh, Valdor to test? Well, we, we started in uh, your garage building the, the very, very first prototype, in it, and that was August. You know, we, we had got going on it, but we pretty much scrapped everything by the time we got up to Velcor and started over, uh, pretty much. But it was, we started in August, and one of the little known facts about the vehicle, you know, we, all three of us being, being uh, mechanics, uh, you know, we wanted to make the vehicle so you could work on it. You were going to be able to get a wrench in here and get a socket there, and it turned out to be the most difficult vehicle to actually work on. You had to have special wrenches for everything. You know, we we got the components put where we needed them, but it always took a special wrench to work on. <laughs> so, so the, what, what, what about that other one, that later, that Pro Stalker, the first, you know, when you had the shocks underneath the engine, that had to be pretty difficult, though. That's, yeah. Yeah, we're going to. requires a lot of tools, too, but we, you know, being that we are working in, uh, we are. Americans, uh, we were actually working for Bombardier Corp is where pay was coming from. So we were getting U.S. dollars is living in Velcor, and uh, our money was worth probably 40 to 50% more back then. And working at the factory, the Snap-on dealer gave the factory a discount, and then we had... Uh, uh, our American money, which was stronger, and prices were kind of on par with the U.S., so it was just a discount. 
So we bought nothing but snap-on tools, and when we built the vehicle, you could get this vehicle, you could actually get a, uh, uh, for the most part, you could get a wrench on every point that you needed to. But if you didn't have a snap-on, it wasn't gonna, <laughs> your wrench, your socket wasn't gonna fit. Yeah. Uh, we didn't realize that until we actually had them out in production and people were, were calling into Chester or Gaetan <laughs> and complaining and, and, and he'd come running up and say, the socket doesn't fit in there. I said, sure it does. And I'd show him and Chester would say, yep, yep, socket fits. And they'd call the guy back and while they're here, the guy would have a Craftsman uh, socket or an SK socket and it wouldn't fit. Well, so it had to be snap-on. So if you didn't have snap-on tools, you couldn't work on the pro stock. Right. So uh, the the, uh, the the carpet special, um, it, the the development period of that. So you started in August and and uh, you started racing it in uh, in January. Um, the That's kind of a neat story. Just to, real quick, I'll try to make it short. But uh, uh, again, the, at that time, the Skidoo. R&D did not get on as well as they could have with the Can-Am group and vice versa, or the race group, uh, the snowmobile race group. But there was then a, uh, a strong engineer was running the, the Can-Am group, and his name was, was Jeff Burgess, Scottish engineer, international six days trial racer, uh, right, yeah. broke every bone in his body on a motorcycle, but also happened to be one of the few engineers I've ever worked with in my life that not only could do it on the board, he could also do it uh, on the vehicle itself. Terrifically skilled individual. But uh, he pulled us aside one day and said, you know, I've been watching you guys. You're pretty clever, and you, you, you definitely get the job done. He says, but you could shorten up your pain period a little bit if you actually tried to draw some of this stuff out before you... Uh, actually started building it, instead of building it five times, you could maybe only build it three times. <laughs> <laughs> so, so he then pulled me off to the side and my brother David and pretty much put pencils in our hands and, and uh, some papers and actually gave us drawing lessons and taught us how to plot suspension movement, taught us how to do layers on a drafting table or taught us how to so that really was the genesis for us doing actual design as opposed to cut and hack. And yeah. had he not stepped forward, uh, I don't know that a lot of this ever would have come about. Yeah, the, the, the design of the carpet special, it's a, it's a beautiful looking sled, you know, the, the cowling and uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a remarkable looking sled. Um, so you raced, you, you raced that and, uh, and Brad Hewlings raced it too. And, and Dave, you were, you were a mechanic for both at that time, and you were also doing uh, twin tracker work at that time too, were you? Um, huh? Sure, we were. There, I was mechanic for Brad, of course, uh, on the twin track stuff like that. Uh, but I, I want to mention this little story because they, Gerard and Randy and another fellow, Joe Sorkin, and a few other guys from the Skidoo race shop, uh, they built up these sleds, and they built three of them. And Russ Anderson. And Russ Anderson. They built one for one sled for Gerard, one sled for Brad and one sled for Jacques Zonet. And uh, where the heck was that we were up testing? In Beldor. And, you know, Jacques is a pretty aggressive fellow, stuff like that. And I, uh, we took it off for a test ride, and he, I mean, 
I think he totaled that thing in a yeah, matter of... Yeah, but Chester wanted me to let him test it. And I said, no, we can't let him test it. You know what he's like. You know what's <laughs> going to happen. <laughs> uh, Joppa only knows one speed. Two laps later. <laughs> so really, he did, to he did total it. Uh, well, so yeah, so then there ended up to be only two of them sweds, which then I think Brad did race it at... Uh, well, he did race it. Brad won the truck with that. He won the truck at Alexandria with that. But I think that was about the end of him racing that sled. Yeah, that was his then, only race. Yeah. Then our our circuits split up at that point. Cross country went one way, and oval racing went to other venues, other other sites. Yeah. So that that kind of slowed that up there then. And Gerard, you interesting sidebar stepping back to KS his, his development was the actual hood shape design styling all was done by name, a guy named Sam LaPointe, a fantastic gentleman uh, who worked with Bombardier throughout the years of converting from the snow dog to the ski-doo. Uh, he did the yellow hood with the black stripes all the way till 19, I want to say 95, 96. Sam was in charge of every single shape that Bombardier ever ever made, which meant snowmobile, Can-Am, uh, planes, trains, and automobiles, whatever the hell yeah. else they were building up to that point. Absolutely incredible designer and an incredible inspiration for all of us. Yeah, so the, 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 the KS had such phenomenal success. Um, so what do you think happened after that? Uh, you know, you, you talked about uh, the, the R&D people didn't uh, get along with the racing people. Here's a sled that was obviously successful, probably with some tweaks to, to make it more workable. Um, could have been a, a, an amazing production sled, or, or could it have been? Like with, with, with Skidoo working on, they're, they're obviously uh, working on the pro stock, the PRS design at that time, where they, I would expect in that time frame. Yeah, they had not yet come out with the PRS design. They had, no, I forget, what, yet, what yeah. was that vehicle called that John G was working on? I forget what that, but it was a tube frame vehicle. Uh, they weren't quite there with PRS. Brad Hewlings is the blame for PRS. Uh, <laughs> 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 uh, tell them about Luke Jari and the development with, with the uh, computers. Remember how the computer would run for weeks on end, oh, generating the points that you yeah. guys, for the programs you guys came up with. That's off the path of the uh, of the uh, that sled, but more towards the twin tracks and stuff. But yeah, we got hooked up with this young lad from the college in Montreal there that Skidoo had hired, and that's just back when CAD was coming into play, not so much from design aspects, but but from hard point, you know, plotting suspension movements and watching it move and stuff like that. Well, this kid and I, we started to work on, we got the green light to develop a new front end on the twin track to move to A-frames instead of trailing arms. And, and uh, I didn't know anything about a computer. And Luke didn't, he didn't have uh, any hands-on mechanical capacity at that point either. But... Uh, we married them two together, and I would lay stuff out on paper, and then he would try to come up with mathematical formulations to plot these movements. And uh, and it did. He did. He was able to do it. It was quite a. It was actually the first suspension. I think the first computerized design 
program in snowmobiling. Without a question. I mean, this guy, between David and this fella, they had jammed in camber change. Oh, it did, it did camber gain, camber loss, uh, horizontal scrub, vertical scrub, bump steer, shock motion ratio. Uh, I mean, it just had everything in it. And so it got to the point there where and he says, okay, now we can set up parameters and turn this computer on at night, come back in the morning and look at the solutions or the potential solutions. Well, like the first night we came back, the first day we came back, there was like 50,000 solutions. Okay, well, <laughs> where do you go from there? So he said, let's just tighten up. What do you want to tighten up? If you want uh, less scrub, you want that to be more important than roll center? Roll center was the other one. Uh, you can do that. If you want the roll center to stay underground or above ground, you can do that and start tightening it up and tightening it up. And, and eventually, yeah, it got to the point to where, you know, it, you got 10 different solutions uh, in a hard point design, meaning that the A arms would be in this location, the pitman arms here, the angles, the shocks, the, everything would be in certain positions. And, and uh, it did. Uh, it did do exactly what it was supposed to do, but and I remember every day going to work there in the morning, and I'd have to say to Luke, I said, "How do you turn this thing on again?" You know, and he'd have to walk me through it again every single day. It was a Hewlett Packard lab, uh, not a desktop, but you can imagine, yeah, and yeah, this yeah. thing would actually have to sit and think over the weekends because a, a one night was not enough time yeah, for it to generate the answer. Uh, yeah, what are we talking about? So the programming uh, still, and, and it's, I wouldn't understand it to look at it even today. So right, yeah, Randy, Randy, Randy. what, 1982, yeah. 1981, 82? No, I, let's see, that was the last, we moved to the A-frame the last season, 83, 84, so it would have been the yeah. 83. Yeah, 82, 83 okay. season, because we would have been post-doc, first year post-doc. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That was the cool thing. I, I want to mention this, Gord, that, uh, you know, from, and I'm sure that my brothers will agree with this, if not most everybody in the industry, that in Formula One racing, car racing, if you raced and worked on the Ferrari teams, you couldn't get better. You were at the pinnacle of Formula One automotive racing. Yeah. In snowmobile racing, if you got to race or work with the Skidoo race team, you were at par with Ferrari. It really? just didn't get any better. You didn't have any more opportunity to create and build stuff as long as you kept winning. You always had to win. If you, did, if you didn't win, you're going to find yourself on the short end of that stick. But Here's the real cool thing that I, I like to tell everybody. You know, even like people around our home here back in Evans, Minnesota, uh, at one time there were 13 guys on that team, from the team manager all the way down to the truck driver. Who was spectacular? You must, Gord, you recall Dan Duval. Oh, yeah. yeah. He, was, he was a great boss because he let us do whatever we wanted to do. Uh, he, he didn't put any leashes on us in that design aspect of things. But now there were 13 guys on that team. Six of them guys were from the United States, which included Brad Hewling. Five of those six 
were from Everett, Minnesota. Really? <laughs> okay. Three of those five were brothers. Yeah. Still are. Yeah. Perfect. So, uh, what, what, what was the conflicts with with with, with Skidoo? I mean, you, you have you have uh, uh, the Carpet Special doing really well. You got the Twin Tracks, you know, w winning races. Racing is just booming, and and, and Skidoo's doing it all. Um, but production production uh, the production sleds probably weren't um, as as big, well known as what was happening with the racing department. How, how do you think the uh, the R and D guys were were feeling about that with uh, with the, all, all of a sudden all the great success that the racing departments were were getting, and obviously, obviously yeah. some pretty good budgets too going on, go, you know, being diverted to uh, the racing departments. Yeah, it was incredible. I mean, I was racing cross country, and my budget was I don't know 140,000 back then. I mean, oval racing was 350,000 back then, and that was Chester who was getting all that money together for all of us. He was doing a hell of a sell job on the on the, his director of R&D, uh, Guy Talbot. Guy Talbot, yeah, that was one of the names there. Anyways, finally Chester forced through Guy Talbot, the, the R&D guys uh, kind of forced the bridge there through Guy Talbot. And, and, and Brad put the last plank in the bridge. <laughs> you can tell this story. When, Which one? When uh, Brad finally told uh, John G. Talbot, who was a, a, a great designer that the uh, uh, designed the RV. Yeah, yeah, the, the father of the RV. Uh, uh, a great development engineer that Skeeter had. He brought, dragged him into the race shop one day and, and said, John G., if you want to have a great snowmobile, you need our front end on it. So we all thought that uh, this was going to be a spectacular thing and that, that the uh, A-frame uh, suspension that Luke Jari and uh, David had designed for the twin track was going to graft itself onto the PRS chassis. But no, that Brad only did a partial cell job. <laughs> right. So he drags these guys in, and, and all of a sudden, Luke Jari is no longer doing an A-frame suspension to go on the front of the next Ski-Doo. He's doing a... Uh, uh, trailing arm front end with a progressive suspension. And I said, Rocky, you got to get in there and correct this, man. Well, that's not my job. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on my way back to Michigan. I ain't got time for this. Yeah, so, so somehow from Brad's uh, great and sincere efforts to get an A-frame on the front of the Skidoo, again, the strength of the Skidoo R&D group had converted that A-frame into the PRS test, which went on of course, to have its own successes, without a doubt. But imagine Skidoo with a uh, with, uh, progressive uh, ratio front end A-frame back in 1983, 84. I mean, because that, that was the potential for what could have come out of this. Yeah. Um, okay, I, I, one thing I wanted to ask you about is uh, when, you, when you were doing the, the, the carpet special, you uh, there was there was a controversy controversy that went on. There was a boycott at uh, I guess Alexandria was it, and then uh, kind of a, a, a vague um, kind of a, uh, boycott at, at Peterborough that never did materialize. How, how did you feel? I mean, um, I, I fortunately got a chance to race against you at that race, um, fortunately or unfortunately, I guess. But uh, um, what, what did you feel about uh, about, about that? You obviously, was, you obviously knew that the, that the sled was I, legal. <laughs> that was pretty exciting. 
Yeah, that, that <laughs> Alex thing was that was an awesome story. That fortitude by Belkin for sure. I don't know if you remember, Gord, but I'm sure you were standing on the wrong side of the fence on this deal. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I just remember I just remember hearing it. Uh, I guess it was the, the night before the, uh, uh, or the or the day of maybe the the, the Peterborough Snowcross, and um, you know there, uh, I heard from another racer that you know there there's possibly going to be a boycott. They got that idea from the the failed boycott at uh, Alexandria, um, but. Uh, you know, uh, how how was that uh, as far as you're concerned? Like, were, were you able to back up pretty much everything with uh, with the with the rule book? Uh, uh, the rule book was pretty vague. Uh, oh, Jim Bilkey backed up everything with the rule book. Yeah. Uh, uh, it was great. I mean, if you can imagine the level of tension, you've got a line in the sand, and everybody who's against the sled is on one side of the line, and on the side of the line that. Uh, Everybody else is not on stands, and this is physically a line. And we're talking about <laughs> there's a wall of people on one side, and there's Brad Hewling, myself, and my our, our support team on the other side. We're standing over there, and Jim Bilkey says is standing on the back of the pickup. He says, "Well, I understand we got a problem here. <laughs> I understand you boys don't want to race within the rules that we have here." Now, is there anybody amongst you guys over there that's got enough balls to come on over here and race for this truck I'm trying to give away? And, and sure enough, I, I I hate to say this, but I, I I don't recall the name of the Claris racer who came across. And uh, he was the ballsiest son of a bitch you've ever seen in your life to come across that line. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. It looks good, kill. Uh, he had every look and every. Oh, every it wasn't Olson, was it? No, it wasn't. So he crosses the line, and Jim's standing on the on the top of that pickup truck, and he says, "Well, these three guys are racing for a pickup truck. Start your engine, men." And that was the end of the boycott. <laughs> and then, yeah, at the end of the day, so you you ended up winning that. Um, so yeah, after Brad after that year, ended up winning it. My fuel pump came apart. On a part that we had modified to fit into the chassis, we had pressed the fuel fitting back in, or the, the pump fitting back in, uh, uh, pulse fitting back in, and, and it dislodged itself in the race. But uh, Brad did go on to win the race. But the interesting thing there, when Jim said that, it, we did literally start our engines, and every one of these uh, guys who weren't into the race they went running back to the pits, and they started their sleds up too, right then and there. Yeah, and it was over with. Basically, yep. basically, uh, that uh, that was the few, that began snowcross really. Uh, that that uh, that race. Um, the wild side of snowcross started right there. Yes, yeah, you you can say that. Yeah, the the, uh, the, the that sport uh, just took off after that. So that 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 sled it it only lasted uh, one one year, I guess. Um, any any ideas what where what, what's going on with that sled? Has uh, has anybody found it? Anybody uh, any leads of where it might be? Uh, obviously, well, we went on and won several races that year. I don't remember the exact count, but probably half of what we entered or a little better. Uh, we didn't race it the weekend that year. Do you remember, Randy? Did we? Well, we won uh, we won at Peterborough. We won the Oval at Eagle River. Not the big event, but the class that that sled ran in, we won there. 
We won the Sioux that year. I think the only race we didn't win is when we had a, a fan motor stuffed into it at a cross country down by Forest Lake. I'm not sure on the results of that. Do you remember that, running across country with a fan? Yeah, I remember those guys handing it to us, too. I remember everybody was spanking our butts here, and I, I just couldn't get over it. God, what, what the heck have we done wrong here? But uh, every now and then, your day comes up, right? But we got smacked down good at, at that event. Huh. But uh, uh, that, that, I think, was the only time it ran that it didn't actually win an event. Okay. Uh, with it, uh, you know, we raced it that season, you know, so we probably raced it eight, nine races total, you know, but it, I, I think the only blemish was that cross country race. Okay. Well, and then, Gord, you're wondering whatever became of that vehicle. Yeah, I'd that, love to know. Is that what I'm hearing in your question? Yeah, I'd love to know where that sled is. <laughs> okay. We were promised that sled, Randy and I, by Guy Talbot, the then VP of Engineering. Uh, unfortunately, we didn't make the right move at that moment in time. We should have hauled it out of the R&D. R&D had a little storage barn down by the race shop. And, and uh, we didn't haul it out of there right at that moment. I went home for a summer break uh, of some sort or another. And when I got back, the sled was gone. And that sled had so much value, and everybody knew how much value it had that was in the race department at that point in time. And that sled wasn't there, and when I went to check where it was, I was told it was disassembled, junked out, cut up, and thrown away. Right. And I know that's not what happened to that sled. I know that did not happen. So that sled has snuck out to the back of somebody's barn, uh, it exists. It's somewhere in Canada, almost guaranteed. Uh, I could even put a name, I guess, on where I, I think I it guess, is. Well, I, can, <laughs> I can guess, and they may not be the same place. But, uh. <laughs> but that sled exists in somebody's little basement hidden somewhere in Canada. Now, the, Randy ended up buying off a bunch of the, the, the chassis parts and all that stuff. I don't know where you, where you went off to with that stuff, Randy. But the actual vehicle, the one vehicle that was left and in its completion, the rest the, were just stripped down for parts, the other two vehicles yeah. throughout the year. But uh, that vehicle exists somewhere. Randy, where'd you end up going with those parts? Well, we brought those parts back to Minnesota. We had them for years uh, that we had kept just in the shed. And eventually, I think, uh, you know, the farmer out in North Dakota ended up purchasing them from us, and now they ended up back at Chuck's, and now they're down in Chicago, all those parts. Aren't they? I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah I'm not either, Randy. Yeah. I, I'm not yeah. Oh, Chuck and uh, Cash, what was the, the fellow that he was building it with? Uh, they were putting them back together again. I'll take this yeah, I think he ain't here anymore. Yeah. No, they aren't here yeah. anyways, Gord. Yeah. But uh, no, there, there, there is a gentleman down in Chicago that's trying to resurrect it, but uh, I don't know where that that's at now. I haven't talked to him for over a year. Yeah. Uh, so, 
So after, after, the, after that sled, um, did, did the EXP come after that sled or did the Pro Stock Skidoo come? come? Pro Stock came next. Okay, the Pro, the pro Stock came next. So t talk about the, the, the Pro Stock uh, sleds. Uh, and, and, and that, that I might add, um, that, that's when my brother Ken uh, became involved with Skidoo and, and started working with you. Um, he had switched from Polaris onto, onto the new Skidoo team because you were coming out with uh, these new Pro Stock sleds. So let's uh, talk about the, the, the Pro Stock sleds. Um, that was obviously a, kind of a derivative of, of the upcoming uh, future uh, MX lineup that Skidoo was going to have, um, but totally radically different uh, front end, like you were saying earlier, with the uh, lie-down shocks in the front end. Well, uh, we were trying to come up with uh, the lightest, simplest uh, motion ratio advantage uh, suspension system. So I, I forget what the rising rate curves are, but we had, Randy, hadn't we, weren't we operating in the area of, I don't remember, 30, 35% somewhere in that area, rise in motion ratio? Oh, I don't remember what they were, but uh, one thing on that vehicle, it was pretty special as far as you could adjust everything on the vehicle. I mean, you could adjust the motion ratio of the shock. You could adjust uh, the length uh, that actuated the suspension. And that turned out to be a actual detriment to the vehicle because it ended up in the hands of, of racers and they'd get them out of adjustment and then the vehicle wouldn't handle. Uh, you know, we... We ran fairly decent with it, uh, but we knew where everything had to be. Uh, but when it got into the hands of most of the, there were a couple uh, uh, privateers that ended up with them uh, that did fairly well. Uh, Lee Falcon, Todd Elmer did pretty good on it, but uh, and Kenny Avon did very good on it. Yeah, and Kenny, Kenny did. Well, Kenny, Kenny did a lot of the prototype testing up in... Uh, Shibugamu. Where was that? Shibugamu? Yeah, Shibugamu, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Kenny, Kenny ran, ran for Skidoo up there, uh, kept him out a little too late one night, and got in a little trouble with Gaetan about that. <laughs> but... Uh, well, Ken, Ken I, I, we, no, have, we have, I have a forward uh, before, before this uh, interview with, uh, with Ken, and he was talking about... Uh, he was talking about that. He didn't mention that part about uh, the going out late at night, but he said that uh, you went up to a, a cross-country race uh, up in uh, Shibogamu and uh, uh, the, uh, the, the, uh, the Indians all racing uh, the Polaris has just handed it to him big time. And uh, Gerard, you were, you, 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 he said that you, you never laughed so hard. Oh, we got spanked good again. You know, there, there's those moments in life where everything comes to reality. <laughs> and there's another one of them right there. Yeah. You think you're on top of the world. You think, you know, you've developed the best sled. Well, you've developed the best sled for some situations, not yeah. all. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So that was a, that was a funny one story. Of the, one of the neater things that happened when Kenny was racing up at uh, Shibugamu, um, I think that's the that's the last place you can drive to in Quebec. I think any any farther north you got to go by helicopter. And we're up there at a cross country race, and lo and behold, uh, who else is there but Edgar Hakeen had signed back on with Polaris as a spokesman, 
I mean, you're about as far from, uh, you know, reality what you can get. And there he is pushing the snowmobile uh, uh, out out there in the mi absolute middle of nowhere. It was pretty. It was pretty exciting day uh, to meet him up there. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, we've okay. been we've been blessed through the years by having Edgar overlooking David's shoulder. Uh, they they grew to be friends while they were at Articat together. So. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Dave, you were uh, you were uh, um, working with uh, I guess uh, Brad Hewlings on the uh, the Articat team too, were, were you not? And and, and then the, the uh, Scorpion Squadron, which came after that, you were uh, you were working on that project with uh, with Brad too, were you not? Well, yeah, I uh, I started out with Hayes. I got my first break as a mechanic for Doug Hayes, and I actually got that through. It all comes back to that performance products and stuff back here in, in Ebbets and Gerard working with Shabitsky and stuff like that. And, uh, but uh, after that year, that was a bad year for us at Skidoo, and, and I think all, most every one of us were let go because we just weren't winning races. You're winning a few, but not not any important ones. Uh, and then that next year, then uh, that's when I went to Scorpion, where Articat bought Scorpion, and Articat, being at Polaris, got out of racing. Now it was just Articat and Skidoo. Articat decided to well, let's get a B team going, and we they started up Scorpion, and that's when they hired Brad Hewlings and Steve Sorson as drivers. And uh, so we spent uh, spent a few years there, and then as the team wound down to one driver, that's when we moved up and actually raced with Articat. But in in the meantime, you know, I think Edgar was president of Scorpion there for a while. Uh, they had appointed him president, and then uh, eventually we all ended up moving back up to Thief River because they were shutting down. Well, the snowmobile industry was just imploding at that point. Yeah. And, uh, Everything ended up at Articat. And mm -hmm. What was the original question there? <laughs> oh, that, yeah, you, you, you answered. I was just uh, your your yeah your your past with uh, with Brad and and in, in that. Uh, oh yeah. That era. Also, your relationship with Edgar. Well, your... yeah, and that 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 was when when I was at Scorpion. That's when I first got to meet Edgar, and Edgar and Hannah. They were just oh, just a wonderful couple. Uh, even in all the way. I, up until the latter years, my kids had met them. Uh, uh, they they had both actually spoke at uh, I think our first Blade uh, gathering when we I think we invited what our first 50 Blade members, our all of our vendors, all of the industry press, the local press, all the people that were helping find our efforts. And I called Edgar, I said, because we wanted to have a special speaker there. And uh, and that was when Edgar informed me. He says, well, David, uh, he's scratching his little goatee. And he said, I don't think I can come up there and speak on behalf of you and your snowmobile. And I said, Edgar, I, I don't care. If you don't have to say one word about our snowmobile. I just, I just want you there. I said, you were just... just just a mesmerizing character in the entire industry. I said. He says, and then he says, oh, let me think about that. He calls back 
I think I can do that. He says, who's going to be there? So I told him, the customers, the press, the vendors, the, the uh, potential investors, and some of the invest banking systems in the area. Yeah. I'll tell you, he, his speech, you could have heard a pin drop. I think we had about 330, 340 people there. And you could hear a pin drop when he spoke. I was I was at that event. I, I remember I remember that. Uh, that yeah, and, and and he hit every single aspect of our needs except for the snowmobile. Yeah. Perfectly. He never really did talk much about the snowmobile, which we didn't want him to. We just wanted his wisdom and character to be be part of this, and it was. And uh, and I remember later on, our general manager Chuck uh, kind of goaded Hannah to get up and Hannah Edgar's wife to get up and speak, and that was the very first time she ever spoke publicly like that. Right, yeah. And she was just as eloquent as uh, Edgar was. Perfect. It was awesome. Yeah, yeah. it was the proudest moment of uh, most of our lives, I yeah. guess you could say. Yeah, we it, had a it few was. prouder, but not much. Yeah. Well, I know there were a few tears shed that, that weekend there, <laughs> along with a whole lot of sweat. And, and, and you boys were awfully tired, too, I remember. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Just to call out one more thing on Edgar. David, do you remember that Edgar thing when you guys would race back, back then? Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, uh, this is the difference between now, the current world we're in right now, and, and a life that had a little better tone to it. Yeah. That's all there is to it. Uh, he, his, his one say early on, back in these 70s and 80s, he mentioned, how come, you don't, how come you don't brag more about, you know, your racing victories and stuff at Arctic Cat and stuff? And says, David, we will say nothing when we lose, and we will say very little when we win. And he left it at that. And uh, he pretty much lived those words, too. You know. Yeah, that's, that's that almost... Braggadocious lifestyle that we're in right now yeah, as compared to the classy way it was handled back then. Oh gosh. No me, 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 me. You know? <laughs> it's far uh, different now these days. Race, yeah, racing back then was you were still trying to prove that you had a smarter brain than the next guy. You were trying to develop a better suspension. You were trying to you know, make the vehicle faster. It, there, there wasn't much, uh, much time spent, very little time spent on promotion, of trying to get funding for your for your team. It was basically uh, prove yourself on the racetrack. Where today, you know, so much time is is spent on the promotion side of it that it lost its uh, technical side of the sport. It's, yeah, it certainly has. I mean, it's gone away from development. And it's gone more to flair and, and riders, and, and it's kind of back to the original type of racing where it's come back to horsepower, you know. Got to mm -hmm. get that whole shot and stuff. Yeah. But uh, I, I agree with what you're saying there, Randy. So, um, okay, that's, that's uh, the, 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 after, the, after that carpet, after the pro stock, the, the EXP, um, what, was, what was the idea behind that, and what, what happened to that uh, development uh, sled? I think there we were asked, charged to build another uh, variant 
uh, for snowcross cross-country racing. And uh, then we said, well, we might as well jump into the A-frame thing. And we liked the rising rates on the front end of, of the ski suspension. So we developed uh, a linkage system, uh, A-arm suspension with, uh, uh, I think we had, we ran a pretty much straight motion ratio curve up to the end that we swooped on that one to, to basically create a hydraulic bump stop on it. But ultimately, uh, that that A-frame sled ended up, I think I had quit racing, yeah, I had quit racing then. And and now we were in the role of support to the race serve uh, out of Valcour. Uh, we hadn't started fast yet. And uh, who do we have, Todd and? Yeah, Todd and Lee. Todd and Lee Falk we hired on to, to run the race for us. I don't know that Kenny, no, Kenny wasn't racing one of those, was he? He was. He was. He was good. At, he was supposed to get one. I, rem I remember him talking about it back then that he was going to get this sled, and then it, it never did materialize. That's probably a good thing for Ken. <laughs> it was a good career move. <laughs> <laughs> the, the thing you figure out after you've been racing a while is the first year sled to come out right, uh, right out of the box. That's that's more. Uh, by chance that it is by actual design. Usually takes a year of sort out on any vehicle to, to really be competitive and uh, he skipped that year of sort out, put it that way. Yeah, so that that that's led to it was uh was it developed from the racing department or from the R and D future products uh point of view? That was pure racing department again. You gotta understand they gave us a free hand. I mean David had the, the twin track board and I had the uh no cross cross country board. So yeah. we basically, you know, we were given a pencil and paper and said, "Start drawing, boys." Yeah. They were fantastic like that. Skidoo was just awesome to work with when it came to uh, doing development because they knew no boundaries. Wherever you guys think we need to go, as long as it's within reason of being reached, we will go there. And yeah. they, they, again, working for Chester, although we fought all the time, uh, in retrospect, uh, it, it was a great relationship. So um, you, you you were obviously starting to. Uh, I, I remember uh, in your office there at, at Valcourt when uh, I was uh, in there, um, you were showing us some uh, suspension designs, um, and I I, I kind of got the, the impression that you were a little bit frustrated that uh, you wanted to adopt this new rear suspension design and uh, and uh, R and D. You know, like you said, they they didn't uh, kind of give you guys the light of day. Um, talk about some of the fr frustrating about. Um, about that time where, uh, you know, there was so much development and, uh, you know, the R&D had one direction and racing had another. Talk about those that, that period. I remember uh, Guy Talbot, again, telling the race department that, or telling R&D that they had to use race department technology going forward. Uh, definitely creating a pretty good wave there, but he was the boss and everybody understood that. And again, Bradley had got them off the hook basically by by uh, letting that by bringing in that that terrifically clever engineer Luke Jari into the program. They had grabbed onto him and said, "Okay, well, we'll just put a rising rate for suspension on our current thing." And we we always called it the the it, it reminded us of a low impact uh, speed bumper on automobiles of the day. Remember how they had to. <laughs> and spring up front to absorb impact. So 
that got them off the hook. And, and then uh, for the rear suspension, they were told to, to use the rear suspension as well. And I remember being in a meeting and saying, well, really, the last thing you want to do is use that rear suspension. I mean, it's just for snowcross landings. And it, if you were to use the rear suspension, uh, you can go ahead and use the front arm. But whatever you do, don't use the rear arm. The rear arm is just, just awful on that thing when it comes to a trail sled. And of course, both, both arms were used. And uh, prominently focused was the rear arm. Because again, the, the goal was to have a rising rate suspension. And at that time, at least in the skidoo R&D world, the only people who were used to doing that kind of development were the people from Can-Am and myself by, and David by training that we had received from, from uh, Jeff Burgess. Right. So, so that, was, that was real frustrating. The ProStock chassis was a really cool chassis, had some really novel design in it, uh, but they, they got off the hook when they adapted that PRS front end onto their existing vehicle. So that was frustrating for everybody in the race department, yeah. including Chester. So where where are we now? Are like we, this is a, a mid mid 80s. Um, are you uh, you're you're getting ready to transform into your new uh, venture um, in your own business? Uh, uh, performance speed shops were really taking off now. I mean, there there, there must have been a couple dozen speed shops that, that uh, fast uh, had begun. You're developing parts for, uh, I mean, everything. You're, you're doing uh, snowmobiles, uh, ATVs, personal watercraft, I, I, I believe, too. Um, talk about that, that transition now. That was kind of an interesting uh, time. Um, not really quite sure what to do, kind of wanting to move home, kind of. You know, Randy, were you, David, you were home already then, weren't you? Uh, well, in 84, they quit factory level racing at the end of the 84 season and that's when I went to I moved to Detroit okay. spent, the, spent a half a year or so with Manta and then went into the auto industry and you guys pretty much I think it was 85 you guys formed fast you and Randy yeah, yeah. I was I was down at Yamaha's R&D center in the city uh, when you called me up to see if I'd come back up and do the snowmobile thing with you. And I was a little frustrated at Yamaha because I was working on it, anything but so. Um, as much as I enjoyed it there, uh, yeah, I gladly ran up to go work on a snowmobile. That's an interesting sidebar I'd like to call out, which one that I, I take pride in, I'm sure my brothers do too. But, uh, you know, I doubt there was a family you might probably have some families in Roseville and Thief River that have swapped some bodies back and forth. But, uh, you know, we collectively learned our skills through, through the OEMs. Uh, David working with Articat, Scorpion, Skidoo, Randy working with Skidoo, Yamaha, and myself working with Skidoo. I mean, we were blessed to learn how, you know, real skill development went, uh, how real uh, testing went, how, how you tested uh, to get the true result as opposed to the result you wanted to get. Uh, all this stuff was, was gleaned onto us through the OEMs. We were very, very fortunate in that yeah. regard. Randy, that, what, that didn't come easy, though. Randy, what was your role at Yamaha? I was a shop fabricator. I, um, 
And actually, you know, in in my development as a snowmobile tuner and fabricator, actually, Skidoo uh, taught me how to basically uh, bend metal and bend tubing. And Yamaha, I had an excellent teacher at Yamaha, or, or co-worker actually, that kind of took me under his wing, uh, a guy by the name of Doug Foote, and uh, turned me into a pretty good little machinist. Uh, well, I wasn't worried about breaking a machine anyway. <laughs> anyway, but uh, yeah, from working from the different manufacturers, they all had their strong points. And uh, uh, I'll say this again, though, but Skidoo's fabricators in their R&D are just absolutely phenomenal. And, you know, they'd, they'd be more than happy, even though there is a language barrier, once you got past that, they realized you were a pretty decent fellow and they're more than willing to share with you. But, you know, we had to overcome the language barrier. Yeah. Uh, us, you know, English and them French. So they did get tired of us breaking tools and dies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So what projects were you working with at, at, at Yamaha? What, uh, were you were snowmobiles or? Well, no, they were they were all kinds. They were they were pretty wild vehicles. Uh, they were definitely recreational vehicles. Uh, that's probably about all I can really say about them. But uh, they were they Here's were definitely. Uh, <laughs> Come on, take that feather out of your mouth. <laughs> it, it it was very frustrating. Put it that way. Yeah. All right, so you're 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 start you're starting team, uh, fast now, um, making all these uh, performance parts. Uh, things are things are doing really well. Um, Next, I got a cute story on that one. Uh, on starting fast. Okay, I was working for Skidoo still, and the Russ Davis, the then VP R and D, uh, VP Sales and Marketing, Skidoo came up and said, "Say we're looking to set up a U.S. racing shop to support Skidoo Racing." And we've got in mind, uh, we've got the Deckers, uh, who were a few other shops at the time there. Um, I don't know, we had about six, seven names that, that he, and performance. TSI. There was a good group of guys that they were looking at, real solid, solid group. And I looked and I thought about it for about a week or so, and I said, I, I got back to him, I said, well, I've looked over your list and I've got a recommendation for you. I, I'm sure you can, can count on He says, okay, who are you recommending? I said, me. <laughs> right. And that's how it started. Yeah. So the, 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 that relationship uh, carried on for a, a number of years. Um, um, what, talk about the, the, those, those years and um, basically then leading up to uh, your decision to uh, start manufacturing uh, your own snowmobile, the, uh, the Blade. Well, we really took the race support serious. Uh, we did not fool around. We we took teams in. We tuned with them. We built custom components, custom systems. I mean, we really supported Skidoo well in our role. I I, I doubt uh, anybody was dissatisfied with what we were delivering. 
uh, as I recall, what we were winning was quite a bit less than what we were delivering. And you might remember some of that not being paid very well for quite some time. Yeah, well, we were, we thought, you know, that we had probably hit on a pretty good deal being the U.S. distributor of the race parts. But when it all shook out by the end of the year, we were attending all the races, we were purchasing all the parts, bringing them down to the U.S., you know, and trying to stock as best we could uh, the parts uh, that uh, we just weren't making enough money for both of us to make a living at it. So that's when we said, uh, okay, the stuff that we're making for the racers, you know, let's, let's basically start offering it as aftermarket parts for consumer snowmobiles, parts that could make the transition, uh, you know, lowering the spindles uh, height on a skidoo, uh, rotary valve replacement, uh, lighter cooling systems, you know, that could translate to the consumer vehicle. And uh, that's actually, we really, we really started to take off then. And I think at that, by that point, uh, David, isn't that when you came on board and started doing a lot more of the design? At first, it was the very initial was the design side and then uh, working more towards the sales side. Uh, yeah, I don't think I actually got here until like 91. Yeah. You guys are well on your way and all your stuff and, and things like that. But 91, and then you know, I think it was that right along the, about the time when long travel was, you guys were working on long travel and stuff through the race, race European racing, I think, actually. Well, we were trying to make long travel work, but we were never getting it to work. Uh, the, the, uh, the true missing link on long travel at that point in time was still coupling the front arm to the rear arm. And that's really where the magic came from, was when we, we discovered that you could put 10 inches of travel into something, but all you were really gaining was a, a steeper ramp angle for the rail to have to jump over the next bump. So the front arm would hit the bump, it would displace a greater amount that uh, approach angle of the rail would go up by another 35, 40%, and then that would force the rear arm to hop over. So none of our long travel stuff was working better than our, our uh, sh short travel stuff that we were working at the time. It was doing some things good, though. I mean, like, uh, I, the short story I like to say on that is that, okay, when long travel was coming around there, it was like, the things that were good about the short travel got better, but the things that were bad about short travel or suspension travel as a whole, that got amplified and even worse. You know, uh, so you might be doing some things that are good and you might be able to eat this kind of a bump, but this kind of a bump would send you over the handlebars, you know. Yeah. So uh, there's a win-lose situation there for quite a while, it seemed like. Yeah, that, that, yeah, so that, you know what David's talking about here. Oh, yeah, for and sure, yeah. The um, inclination of the rail was really the, the uh, object that need to be, needed to be solved. And 
Randy and I worked through that, and uh, our first coupled suspension, uh, really, Randy, didn't you weld a, a pivot onto the front arm? And Yeah, you welded a, a arm onto the front arm that raised above the, above the cross tube, and we cabled that back to the rear arm. And we, we had a link tied in there. And when we came up with that, it's, it's, it's like the, a whole new world was delivered to us. Everything came together then. Yeah. This is unbelievable. It's like the back of the sled is broke off. We don't even feel the back of the sled anymore. Right. Yeah. It was absolutely incredible. That, that, uh, now, uh, that's the, the, the M10 era. You, you also uh, um, had Tony Heikinen come over at, at that period uh, uh, against starting Snowcross. Snowcross was getting very, very popular still, um, but the, the, the Snowcross was uh, transforming into more natural terrain type races. Um, t talk about the, your, your work with, uh, with Tony, and, and that, that was your, your, own, your own race team. Well, one thing I want, one point I want to make, stepping back to the M10 and the coupling, to this day, every snowmobile that, that you're buying out there on a higher performance level, uh, there would only be but a few exceptions that aren't using the coupling technology that we developed right here in Eblis. Now, mind you, we made some business deals along the way that were supposed to be winners for us. And over time, it didn't really work out quite as well as we would have liked to. But again, all of, all of that long travel stuff that you're enjoying today, Gord, yeah. that oh, yeah. originates right here within our group. Yeah, right. yeah, for sure. Yeah, one of the vehicles that's probably very little known in the U.S. and Canada was the vehicle that we actually called M10. Uh, what we had done is uh, we do had asked us to build a race sled, and so Gerard and I and our crew uh, built a, took a Skidoo uh, TRS chassis, and we stripped the front suspension off of it. We took the rear suspension out, and that's when we we had built the first M10, and. Uh, we had uh, connected the front shocks directly to the lower A-arm. Lower, um, uh, uh, lower, lower, lower radius rods. And that sled actually went over to Europe. The European distributor at the time for Skidoo was Movac. And that thing, I think it won pretty much for eight years. That vehicle won uh, the European championship eight years going forward, and that was like, oh, 90, 91 in that era. Uh -huh. It went on to be the Lynx ski suspension system for many years. I don't know. They yeah. may still sell that stuff. I don't know if they, they do, do or they, they, they don't. don't. Very, still similar. Yeah, it's very uh, similar. It's very similar design. I know that. Um, yeah, that was, a, that was a hot rod sled. Yeah. We were fortunate, again, standing in the right place at the right time. We, we got connected with a Swedish racer, uh, Christer Johansson, and his manager, who was the manager of Skidoo Service back then, Bo Strandberg. And between those two guys' technical capability, which was far superior to any racers we were working with in the United States, there was nobody even close to this Christer in terms of both his riding capability 
and his, his development. I mean, it was a mix that was just unbelievable. So again, standing in the right place, and it really made a huge difference in what we were doing. Right. So, uh, and, and and you were and you were working with uh, with Tony Heikinen, uh riding your uh, your sleds uh, for a race team, and I guess it would be 91, 92 ish time frame. Oh, that didn't come around until about ninety four. Okay. And that rode in again on Christer's back. Uh, we had Christer racing in the United States for us occasionally, and then. Uh, we became aware of Tony's riding capability that year, I think through Bo, through Christer, I'm not sure. Anyways, made a trip to Europe, saw the kids' capability, signed them, brought them over here. Yeah, and that, that turned out to be quite successful. Uh, a race a race in a stock sled and, and uh, your mod sled with, uh, with, the, with the M10 in it. Yeah, I like to think that Tony really was the impetus for snowcross racing. I mean, he taught everybody over here how to fly, let's say. Yeah, yeah. Uh, up to that point, we were all just kind of flying, hitting the bumps, and wherever we landed when we got done, uh, you dealt with it. But uh, Tony actually yeah. taught everybody about air aerobatics. So yeah, yeah. He was the man there. That's great. All right, so do you want to start, um, let's, let's, let's get into um, the air that uh, um, you're now looking at uh, developing your own sled. Um, the blade. Um, talk about that 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 era. Let's uh, going forward. When did when did that the idea first come around, um, and uh, the development of that? Um, you know, was it was there a, a time that you maybe got frustrated with uh, with it uh, going forward? Talk, well, talk about that. I'd like to grab this one. Uh, the reason we decided. How the idea came about was one: we've been we've designed and built and maintained and improved sleds for all these different manufacturers over the years. But when we came out with the M10, now I think what was our first actual year here? Was it 93? I think so. 93, when it had torsion springs and coilovers on it and stuff. Still looking for one of those. If anybody has one out there, <laughs> like to have one for for posterity here. But uh, we came out with this suspension. I think it was who, who Sandberg was the first guy, first press guy yeah, to ride it. Sandberg, yes. And it just was on fire after that. And, and it was designed only for Skidoo. But quickly, Polaris riders ran to our door, and we were now trying to figure out how to bolt these things into Polaris chassis and stuff like that. But we, the three of us, uh, it, we felt that, okay, we'll get maybe one or two or three years out of this, and then the big four are just going to blow by us, and here we are standing with our hands in our pockets. You know? So it was pretty early on, almost immediately, that we started working on, okay, what kind of a sled should we build? And, and I remember we are up in, I think it was Gerard's office at the time, and uh, we said, well, we all wrote down on a piece of paper. And so, and then we pulled them out and put them up on the board. And one said, "Build the, you know, the most advanced snowmobile." One said, "Build a cockpit twin track like a Manta couple. And one said to build a mini sled because at that time there was only the Kitty Cat and none of these other little, uh, little mini MXZs and ZRs and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And 
that was when we decided to build the most advanced snowmobile. I think if you asked us all today, which one of those would you do it the same way? I think we'd all we'd all go back down. We'd say, no, nope, let's build that mini sled. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> I understand, Gordon. We were. I want to know. I want to know who just who wanted to build the twin track. Well, <laughs> I threw that in there because I we were thinking that we could only build 500 snowmobiles a year. Yeah. And I think it was because of the motor limitation that we were trying to get with Ski-Doo. Uh, we had done a deal, we had, let, we had done a handshake deal with Pierre Baldwin, the then, I think he was VP R&D, or I don't know if he was director or VP. But we'd done a, a test with him up in St. Matthews, and uh, said, yeah, I like the way it works. And we did a handshake deal in which he would sell us 250 Rotax motors okay. a year. And we would sell him the rights to M10, license the rights to M10 to him, and I think he had to give us $50,000. So it was a, basically we were giving the project away to him just to have access to those Rotax motors. Mm -hmm. And then after about three weeks, he reneged on his handshake. And uh, I think that came down to the, something that's quite typical, at least through our eyes, in, in working with OEMs in the snowmobile industry, and that is, Usually the managers, like Pierre then, uh, they could see the, the forest for the trees, but within the R&D groups themselves, they have a very hard time bringing in technology from the outside because their position is not supported by that. As Roger Stein said to me once, well, I've got 10 guys working for me. I'm spending, I don't know what he said, $200,000 a year, $500,000 a year on suspension groups here. What, what value are they to me if I'm taking in your work? And I said, well, that's... One way to look at it, I guess. But uh, uh, we had, we knew we had very limited motor uh, quantities that would be made available to us. So then we said, well, to maximize the dollars on this, then let's just build the high end as opposed to building the low end on the thing and try to get some premium bucks for everything that we're doing. Not unlike a Ferrari or Lamborghini. Yeah. Something like that is how the decision was made. Yeah, and that's where we're like, with the twin track aspect, I did spend some time working with Manta after I left ski and I realized that he had a market. He had a very different customer base. Uh, he was out of near Detroit there. and, and uh, Bob Bracey. Bob Bracey. Bob Bracey. Another brilliant guy as well. But uh, he, uh, he, his problem was, was that he didn't want to charge maybe a hundred or two hundred dollars more for a 440 Manta which has twice as many parts as a 440 EXT, you know, or already cat rather. And uh, that led to that thing slowing down to nothing, so to speak. But uh, I knew there was a base of customers there that, that were hungry for something different than what the OEMs currently supply. Right. And there still is. There's still those little niches out there that that people people will go to. You know, they just don't want to follow everybody else. But uh, anyway, that that was how that got on the board. So uh, you didn't you, last long. You, you you didn't end up going with the Skidoo engines. You ended up going with the uh, the Polaris uh, motors for the for the blade. Uh, how how did that deal come around? Uh, really, it came back to Skidoo uh, reneging on the deal. I, I mean. You know, out in the country here, a handshake's a business deal as far as we're concerned. But uh, get a little closer to the big city, some of that stuff goes away, I guess. 
So we then had to put together a relationship with somebody to supply us motors. We, we looked at all kinds of motors. Uh, Honda, we, we had uh, touched base with them. They actually sent us a couple of motorcycles. Uh, we talked about you know, maybe that rotary out of the Mazda. We, we, we were all over the map on trying to find uh, another, a new direction in motor, you know, even though we did want the Rotax because it was CC for CC, you just never got more out of, out of a motor than, than Rotax. Yeah. Uh, but eventually, I don't know, I don't remember quite how that Polaris relationship got connected, but that's that's how we ended up. They ended up developing, what was it, a 600 or did 700. It, was it a 700 twin? And that's what we wanted was twins. Yeah. Light, we were trying to build a lightweight snowmobile with lots of travel. So you already had a you you already had the the uh, the sled concept done and completed prototypes. You were just trying to uh, firm up a, a motor now to uh, to go on it. And that's not we had prototypes going, but they weren't uh, near to what the ultimate sled. Uh, in fact, the original designs were quite different from what we yeah. ended up with. They totally dissimilar would be a a, a description. Yeah. The uh, Original prototypes actually had a gearbox on the motor, and we brought the RPM down, thinking that we could pick up some efficiencies this week. Figuring we could spin a motor up to 10 grand, let's say 9 grand, 9,500, and then gear it back down again. Well, our initial uh, uh, results from that, that vehicle and that build were not very promising, so we went away from it. None of us were satisfied with what we ended up with there, yeah. all the way from one end of the sled to the other. So was were, were you guys thinking uh, ahead now, like uh, um, like you're, you're you're committed now to to going into production for, with, with a snowmobile? Not at that point. No. We would have if we wouldn't have lost our what, what year did we lose the agreement to the engines? I want to say is like '96. But if we wouldn't have lost that agreement, I'm pretty certain that we would have been in production by '98. I think we were shooting for 97, but when that hiccup happened, uh, we were all over the map then after that. Yeah, we were scrambling like crazy people trying to fill that hole. Yeah. Finally, Polaris recognized that uh, there was value in our coupling patent and what we had, had developed there. And they, I think, if looking in retrospect, they bought that patent and used it for leverage against other patents within the industry. I think that would describe their uh, effective use of that patent. That Mind patent. They built cans with us for, what, six, seven years, something like that. So they got good value there. But ultimately, uh, I, think, I think without that patent um, licensing happened. deal, we never would have got motors out of them. Mm -hmm. That all just came came together for us because of the M10 coupling patent. Yeah. And did they, did, 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 at the, was the front end developed at, the, at that time? Did were any interested in that? I don't believe that we were trying to make a deal with anybody at that time. We were trying to do our own vehicle. We, yeah. They were just interested in some technology we had in the can uh, with regards to coupling front and rear arms. Right, right. The, uh, okay, so the, uh, the 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 actual development of of, of the blade now, kind of the uh, the more final addi additions uh, before you go into uh, production. Um, the very exotic front end you had there. What was uh, um, 
Gerard, that's your that was your own design. Uh, David was of the designers of the three of us as designers. The best designer was always David, but he is always uh, a better pitchman than the rest of us too. <laughs> fortunately, unfortunately, accepted the role of getting out there and selling the stuff, and and we lost some of his uh, designing skills at at that point in the R and D, and and I kind of shored up behind him on that. Um, certainly, his involvement was the whole way through on that that perspective. Just I had more input than. He did it at that point in time. I think that describes it. But uh, we were both driving the bus uh, on the drawing tables at that point in time to come up with that front end. Mm -hmm. Now that, that front end has links back. Yeah, all the way back to the racing days. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, back to the races cross yeah. country. Again, you, you know everybody's bragging about their rising rate nowadays. I mean, we had that shit back. Back in the early 80s. Early 80s. So and and the almost I, amusing to watch them fight over who's got more rides. So kind of funny. And and your your chassis design that was a, that was a like a perimeter type ch uh, chassis design that which uh, that went on to kind of become like a, a rev type chassis. Well, I would like to say that the rev kind of went on to become kind of a blade like chassis to describe it properly. Wouldn't you, Lord? I I, I know there's. Definite uh, similarities between the two. But what I'm saying is, which one came first? Well, the, the uh, I guess. Come on, Gord, you can you can say it. Come on. I I, I can I can say it. I I think the blade came first. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so you've got Arctic walking that walk. Now you've got uh, exactly yeah. walking that walk in some regards. So yeah. Everybody kind of moved in that direction. So we can say you did it. Sure. Um, okay. So. Um, when did you actually decide to, you know, that you've you've got all these pieces together now? You got a great front end. You got the the M10. You, you know, you got the design. You got a handle on some Polaris engines. What, what was your plan? When did you come back here? I came back, I think, in oh, probably '99, something like that. I left came back before that. Yeah, it was 98, 99, because I was, I was at Yamaha in 96, 97. Uh, actually, I had left the company because I didn't agree with the direction of the snowmobile at the time of my leaving, and uh, I just felt I was a hindrance to where they wanted to go at that time. And uh, I said, well, I'm going to ball out here. I got an opportunity to go racing again with Yamaha. I'm going to take that. And that's when I managed their snowcross team. But uh, when I came back, uh, I was glad to see that the vehicle had changed drastically from when I had left. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> it now had an A-frame on it. And <laughs> So it was it was pretty exciting time, that's for sure. Yeah. But I didn't I didn't come back till I think it was ninety eight, maybe the the earliest when I came back. I think you came in I think you came up in ninety seven though and saw the chassis, the A frame, the suspension. And yeah. maybe everything everything probably wasn't ready for production at that point and not no drawings of everything, but you pretty much thought it's okay. Because we were courting you to come back. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. No, you guys brought me back and showed the 
showed the change in the vehicle, and yeah, I got excited when I when I saw it. And that's when I severed ties with Yamaha again. So you want a, a set of carburetors pointing forward will make a man do, right, Gord? <laughs> that's right. Yeah. <laughs> that's good. So um, uh, w w when did you actually decide that you're, you know, this this is doable? Um, you know, the, the, and and, and what were you? What was your what was your initial? Nineties. That was in the nineties. And so, what was your initial plan to do small quantities, or and what was your quantities uh, of sleds uh, at that time that you were looking at? Gerard, I think you had actually worked out. You say 250, but then later on, I think you got this thing up to 500 motors with ski do. No? No. no. Well, okay. Well, we were we were we knew it was a limited build, so we also had to have high a lot of value. And we had to add and make some money on this thing, you know, uh, albeit uh, that's still yet to be done. Uh, <laughs> uh, the uh, uh, We were ready to go or wanting to go early, but we didn't really get going until Randy came back and, and started handling, uh, getting this thing more productionized. That's, a, that's a, Gord, that's the one thing that, that M10 really taught our company is uh, how to get something mass produced. Because, you know, when we first came out with M10, I think the first year we might have only built 50 or 100, and those numbers kept ramping up, and we had to go out and source suppliers that could keep up with uh, our increase. And really, we learned uh, just an awful lot about manufacturing and what was capable with the budgets we had to work with mm -hmm. and uh, that that really cemented the idea that we could build the stone too as well because we were now producing you know close to 1500 2000 m10s a year and uh, knowing what it takes to produce that you know uh, welded, machined, painted product, you know, that was all became made the vehicle, uh, in our eyes, much, much more doable project right. for us. Yeah. So what, uh, what, what year did you actually plan or uh, set out, okay, uh, you know, you, you, you obviously had to go and uh, get all the contracts for your suppliers and, uh, and stuff and, uh, um, what year did you, did all this fall the fall together? Where uh, okay, we got all your suppliers. Uh, you got some decent funding to do uh, the blade. Um, you got your you now have your engines. Um, what uh, what year was that? That would have been uh, the first year. Would have been ninety nine, wasn't it? Ninety eight, winter of ninety eight, ninety nine. What year was the, the meet and greets with all the customers? That was the spring of ninety nine. Yeah, it's either 98 or 99. Yeah, yeah. I, I think yeah. it has uh, been a long time. Yeah, I know. I, 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 like I was telling you, I was, I was at that event. Um, and uh, let's, let's, let's go back to that, um, that evening and uh, that weekend. Um, my recollection is that uh, we, we went there and, um, you, you know, with all the customers that have uh, pre-ordered and stuff like that, and you had uh, two or three. Uh, assembly areas. Um, uh, you had uh, um, 
I guess a place where Gerard was uh, living at that, 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 that two-story house uh, where some development was being done and then you had uh, uh, an old IGA which is which is uh, you call the IGA or, or, or something and then uh, that's where you did your manufacturing. Old grocery store. Yeah, an old grocery store. Um, but that uh, that meet and greet, uh, I, I remember that was uh, a, a little bit of a nervous uh, nervous evening because uh, um, I, I swear you guys were still let building. Me, let me step back one moment on the three buildings. Okay, we had the R&D center out at the lake, which was a, a reworked uh, restaurant, uh, restaurant uh, resort. resort. That's right. Yeah. Then we had the IGA, and then we had the armory, where the actual production of, of the vehicles eventually was was brought up when we ramped the numbers up on them. But uh, there were three places, and no matter what part you were looking for. It was always at the other place. <laughs> right. Okay. And we eventually called it the Bermuda Triangle. You're right. Yeah. yeah. But uh, either the parts or people. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I remember that evening, and like like I said, I swear you guys were still building that sled behind the curtains. Um, you were right. Well, we we were the guys. Uh, first production sled. Uh, that was a that was a struggle. We were we were beginning to find out how big of a monument task that was to build a production vehicle. Our eyes were getting opened up, but uh, yeah, the the first sled when it showed up uh, on display a, a complete functioning vehicle, I think the guys had worked. Uh, granted, we were working 20-hour days as it was, but. I think before that show, I think they were like, probably it was probably 48 hours since anybody had slept. I mean, the guys, we were all cramming to get it done. You know, our younger guys just couldn't understand how us old dogs were digging like this. And we said, you think we're old? I said, you should have been at the Skidoo builds when we'd worked three days straight. And there were guys that were 50 years old. They didn't care. They were sleeping on the lunch table just like everybody else. Yeah. And you just keep right on going. So, yeah, in the snowmobile world, you put some hours in from time to time. That was one of them. Yeah. Hero work is what we called it. So the uh, the blade the blade ended up it uh, the, the, it ended up uh, being a pretty remarkable machine. Um, uh, talk talk about the, the uh, you know the the, the, the manufacturing. Um, um, how many how many sleds actually did get uh, built that you that you have recollection of and um, um, Gord, you know better than ask a question like that. You know, no OEM talks like that. You know, they don't <laughs> I know they don't want to give, give out the, the numbers the, that we want you to give out. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> okay give, give me the numbers that's that you almost, want. That's almost like a number one question. I know, I know, and that's why I was tr struggling to get it out. So what, what numbers do you think you might uh, or, or, you, or uh, you want to say? That first year we did get 50 units, though. Uh, first year I think was, was it 50? Yeah, 50. Yeah. Then what? Yep, 75 or 125, uh, maybe 150, and then I think two. 250 was our biggest production year. I don't, yeah, we hit about 250, and then it's been it went shrunk, and it's been greatly reduced ever since. But the reality, Gord, that year that that the following year we had orders on the books for 475 units at dealer. And then the planes went crashing through the buildings in New York, and exactly. life was never the same after that. That's what I, that's what I was going to ask you. So uh, I mean, after after that uh, that uh, 
tragic uh, event. Um, really, the, the, the industry in whole kind of. After the world saw the blades, that's when Skidoo went to work. To, uh, they were the first ones to jump on it. They, and, and that would be like Skidoo. Skidoo gets aggressive. Mm -hmm. and, and they came out first. And then you saw the other guys follow. Mm -hmm. uh, no, no, uh, you didn't see the RX-1 until that came out in 2003, I think. Yes, correct. Okay. So you did see them at the snow report, which would be... Uh, 2002. What would that be? That would have been... 2002. Uh, yeah, 02. Yeah. But the industry as a, as, as a whole doesn't know that until it comes out in the media, which is basically embargoed until whenever they say it's okay. Right. So none of that, none of that other stuff happened, uh, even remotely close to when Blade came out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Gord, uh, certainly the Skidoo is different than what we built. Certainly the Players and the Arctic are different and not Blade snowmobiles. That said, however, the influences that we carried at that moment in, in, in our industry were huge, and I, and I think the majority of people uh, are benefits because of our efforts. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, uh, now, you, you, did, you did attend the snowshoot, uh, I guess it would have been 2004, with, uh, with a, a more expanded lineup. You had, uh, you had a striker, you had uh, the blade, you had, you had you know a... That might have been all four then that the RX-1 came out. No, because the, the, the Rev only came out on the racetrack. That wasn't in production yet. 2002. Okay, then. so I want to say it was the 03 season that we were at that snowshoot and stuff. And I remember being, I was there. Yeah. And I remember talking to every one of you guys and I said, is there a better riding, better handling sled here? And not one person, not one press came back and said, yes, mm -hmm. there was not. And there wasn't. And there right. wasn't. And, and, uh, there was a few bold individuals like yourself, though, that actually you got closer to what you wanted to say than anybody. Mm -hmm. It was. It you was. Didn't cover it, was, it with a caveat. Yeah, it was. It was a totally different sled. I, 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 I give you that. It was. Uh, that's. Uh, that's for sure. And uh, um, you know, I've I've ridden every sled uh, basically produced. You know, since 1988, I guess I've ridden every single model of snowmobile. So. You guys came in, and it was a totally radical sled that you had. I mean, the, the front end was totally different than what I've ever uh, been on. The rear end was totally different. Ergonomics were totally different. It was just a, it was a different feeling sled by far. Than, yeah, uh, it was the beginning of it all. Yeah, yeah. So. Well, and, and the sled itself, you got to remember, was going through little tweaks here and there from uh, the first year's production vehicle was the absolute ultimate if you drove the vehicle aggressively. Uh, it, it did everything you wanted it to do. But we actually had to tone that down a bit by lengthening the chassis a little bit just so they became more consumer friendly. Yeah, they were a little... The, the blade, you know, just... It wasn't the same blade all the way through production. Right. So uh, stretching that chassis was was uh, 
not a desired thing to do in that going into year two, but we did it. Yeah. Is it year two or year three? One of the two. Yeah. Okay, so um, did you want to um, okay, go into the, the, the past of the blade? Um, do you want to jump to what's what's going on currently and um, the future of of uh, Blade, which is now called Blade Motorsports? Correct. 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 Uh, and I and I'm in charge of that basically, and that's its, its own business in its own self. It's it's uh, although Gerard, who has seen fast, we work side by side and together every chance we get to help help each other and stuff, but. Uh, a very limited build, uh, got a little bit more uh, recent years, got a little bit more aggressive on engines. Uh, since 86, I hadn't put anything but a 700cc Polaris in there until about three years ago. Uh, I stuck 96. up. What's that? You said 86, 96. 96, yeah. Okay, sorry. Uh, stuck a uh, 2000. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure which. Yeah. Well, anyway, uh, uh, so we just used the 700 Liberty engine religiously because it was such a good engine, and it still is a really good economic engine. But there just isn't enough differential, or wasn't enough differential to keep that in Polaris's lineup. Uh, so in recent years, I've just been uh, started grafting in some bigger engines. And we've been moving kind of more towards the E-Tech, uh, so we can get some, uh, you know, you, you get the the most advanced engine, and still what I what I would say is still the best handling, best riding snowmobile out there. And uh, that E-Tech engine just complements that thing so well. Uh, so, but it's not the only thing I do. I st we still build the uh, 700 Liberty size engine. It's just that my customer base. Has gotten. They like Ferrari guys, you know. They get. You can stick a four-cylinder in a Ferrari and supercharge it, turbocharging that, 2,000 horsepower, whatever. But the guy still wants the uh, V12. Mm -hmm. you know, they like the size of that engine. So I have. I've had to start moving back towards putting big bores into the blades, which, uh, which is good. Yeah. Business been picking up the last couple of years. Been getting better. So if if, uh, if a customer calls uh, calls and, and orders a blade, um, what are their options? Uh, engine size, uh, they can they can got a number of things uh, in in suspension and uh, you know uh, some of the typical stuff like you know again we don't use the electric start as a standard and stuff like that uh, so those are options and just depends on what kind of riding what kind of rider you are going to be. And doing. So. Mm -hmm. And and um, uh, track lengths and stuff like that, or is, is there a track one lengths, track types? Uh, we with the number smaller, you can get a little bit more personal in the design. So like the guy wants a yeah a little longer track and a longer lug as opposed to shorter and studs. You know we can do that and do do that. Okay, so for if if you have a standard uh, based snowmobile, um, have you got kind of a rough estimate uh, of a manufactured price that you can pass on? 
MSRP on a 700 is 19.5. 19.5, and with a E-Tech? Uh, E-Tech shall run up about 25. Mind you, with E-Tech, I have to buy whole snowmobiles, strip the engines out of there, and uh, then uh, sell off the balance and try to recoup some of that cost of that vehicle. Right, because you haven't got a kind of. A don't have an access to the engine and stuff. It's a great engine, but uh, don't have access to it. Um, have, you, have you ever tried uh, uh, approaching, uh, say, Yamaha or, or, uh, or maybe putting one of their four-strokes in or a Skidoo four-stroke or any? Yeah, I think Yamaha all the way through this thing. There was a few times when we were considering their 600 twin, but we, it didn't have a lot of power and it was a little heavier. And we also at that time, that's when they had that four-cylinder inline four two-stroke. Mm -hmm. We looked at that, I think, in the early days of the, the mid middle 90s, but it was bigger, heavier, uh, inefficient. Nice power band, but uh, packaging-wise and weight-wise, it wasn't uh, wasn't fitting uh, wasn't fitting our, our ideas. And what about a four-stroke? So I'd love to put a four-stroke Yamaha in there right now, and I I don't know if they sell me sell me engines or not, but uh, they've always been open to the idea. It seems like. Okay, so why don't we uh, wrap this up and uh, let's 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 talk about what everybody's doing these days. So, uh, Dave, you you're you're doing the the, uh, the Blade Motorsports uh, along with Gerard and uh, Gerard. Uh, well, you got you guys uh, talk uh, um, one by one. Uh, what, uh, what what you're all up to now? Go ahead, Gerard. Well, my uh, my uh, dream hasn't changed. Uh, building the best. Snowmobile suspensions on Earth. That that part still drives me every day, uh, and that's what I consider fun. Um, working a little bit in the world of TVTs these days. Uh, working with Gates Corporation also on developing their product lines and trying to kind of be a goodwill ambassador for TVTs around other drivetrains. Uh, working towards the micro car stuff. Doing some sprinkling some influence on scooters. Uh, Working with some other manufacturers on ATVs, all, all around the area of CVT drives, and uh, uh, using Gates' phenomenal polychain final drive uh, system, such as that used on the RMK. So uh, that's been an interesting slot. Doing some work with those guys over the years here now. Um, basically, uh, suspension work and CVTs. Uh, my life hasn't changed that much. Yeah, and Randy. Uh, I'm down in Brainerd, Minnesota. I'm working for Fox Factory Inc., manufacturer of uh, Fox stock observers, and I'm their service coordinator. Uh, basically, I, I go around. I started with them in their racing division, uh, and now I'm in more of the training uh aspect of the company. I go around uh, to different distributors around the world, uh, give training classes, go to OEs, give training classes on how to properly service our shock absorbers. Um, pretty much pretty much hanging out in Brainerd and trying to get in as much golf as I can. <laughs> and that's uh, Fox Shock with the snowmobiles, motorcycles, uh, and just about all, all power products, correct? Yes. Uh, anything in uh, recreational vehicles, that's, 
those are the shock absorbers I'm involved with. And uh, it can be from fitment issues, you know, to, you know, all sides of the shock absorber, you know, uh, getting them uh, out to production. I'm pretty much uh, just uh, more on the behind the scenes uh, part of the company. Uh, and it's really around the technical support of the product. Right. And Dave? Uh, obviously, uh, deeply involved in, in manufacturing the blade snowmobiles. Uh, but we do do a few other projects here now and then. Uh, actually, we got a uh, Canadian company, uh, VSP, that manufactures a uh, solar wind power generator that we've been working with for about the last year. Uh, trying to redesign their product and make it uh, upgrade it and more efficient and more saleable and get the volumes up. Uh, and we're trying to find products like, uh, I think Gerard puts it, he says, we need to be selling products that people need, not just want. Yeah. And sure. that is a product that uh, once we get up and running with it, I, it'll, it'll fit that, uh, that mode real nicely. Okay, have you got some uh, some phone numbers uh, for uh, for Blade Motorsports and Fast uh, Team Fast and uh, some websites? Well, you can reach us both both companies at two one eight seven four four two one zero one. No, two one zero one. Yep. Yeah, and uh, your website is www.teamfast.com. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and, and Blade. Blade's website is under development. That was great uh, talking to the Carpet Brothers. Uh uh, Gerard, uh, he was a big influence on me, and uh, and as you heard uh, Ken talk earlier, a great influence on him. Uh, great instructors, uh, great guys to hang around, and uh, just like just like Gerard, uh, he calls me back a few minutes uh, after this conversation. He says, "Gordy, there's there's, uh, there's one more guy I wanted to thank, and that was uh, Joe Sorkin." And uh, so uh, he asked if I could uh, pass on a, a big uh, shout out to uh, to Joe for uh, helping him along the way, and uh, as you're as we're talking. Uh, through this conversation here it, it, it's just like the carpet brothers is you know you uh, you catch them at any event or anything like that and that's just exactly how these guys are this is they're very open uh, very very talkative and just down-to-earth uh, great guys and uh, just uh, really happy to uh, to uh, have known these guys and uh, and uh, I really look forward to uh, to catching up on uh, catching up with them again in the, in the future and uh, just uh, great to uh, sit down and uh, and chat so I hope you uh, you all like this uh, this uh, podcast. Uh, I would lo really love to hear your uh, comments, and you can do that uh, from um, whichever link uh, you're listening to this from, either the iTunes uh, um, subscribed page, uh, and you can subscribe from in iTunes on the Snowmobiling Podcast, or uh, you may be getting this uh, from the Facebook link, um, and you can do that just uh, again, comp uh, just making your comments uh, on uh, the Facebook page. So. Some great, uh, great ways to uh, make this uh, podcast go further. Uh, I'd love to hear any suggestions. If you have a product, if you have a, a destination that you really like, uh, I, I'll give you a call, and we can uh, we can chat. So, this is Gordavan from the Snowmobiling Podcast, and we look forward to talking to you soon. <laughs>